Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. What's good, Internet? It is February 19th, 2021. I'm Austin Walker. I'm back again with another one of these special reset episodes. This one's easy. There's two topics, and it's it's just Dexter, and both topics are both... Uh, all waypoint people. So this is this is like a little bit more of a focused conversation version of the podcast today. Uh, the first one is fandom and race, uh, and that one is me, Gita, and Dexter. The second one is regulation and moderation and some other stuff, uh, and that is me, Patrick, and Dexter. I think they're good episodes. I'm gonna get out of your way immediately this time. I don't need any big long uh, uh, intro. So I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back on Tuesday with another regular episode. So look forward to that. Peace. All right, welcome back. So now it's time to break it all down with the Reset Roundtable. Joining me on this one are Motherboard staff writer and Sim superfan slash beat reporter, Gita Jackson, along with the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker. Welcome, y'all. Nice to be here, Dexter. Hey, Dex. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get let's 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 just get into it like this. Um, since we're talking about fans and fandom and all that, what do you remember the first time that you played a game and you felt like you saw yourself on screen? Yeah, I remember the first time I really got into a game was probably Pokemon on the Game Boy Color. And I had no conception at the time that the the Kanto region was like supposed to be based off of a you know, but cities and towns in Japan. But I looked at that little character, a little boy, so I'm already do some like doing some like mental editing of what I'm seeing and how I'm translating <laughs> into my head. But seeing that little boy that was destined to become the Pokemon champion, I looked at that little boy and there was like no separation at all between that person's character and me, like my literal self. I think that might be literally the earliest example of me just playing a game and projecting everything that I was onto that character. Because the baseline facts that you know about that character is that they are a child with a thirst for adventure and they want to catch them all. And at that time, I was those three things. So <laughs> that was <laughs> a pretty strong moment of identification Wait, for me. So so was that was that like aspirational that, yes, I also want to go on adventures <laughs> that I can't really do in real life? Because, you know, you're not supposed to be going out and catching animals. Like, I'm sure your parents weren't cool with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't exactly run away from home and like travel the world. So it's definitely aspirational <laughs> for me. It spoke to my desire as a kid to see new things and to keep learning things. You know, one of the coolest things about the Pokemon protagonists is that they get hooked up with a professor, you know, someone who can explain to them the newness of the entire world. Like Pokemon as games are built around this idea that like integral to a young person's maturing is this ability to have their worldview challenge and to Mm. question things and to seek answers outside of their hometown. I was very much one of those kids, you know, like every pop punk song goes, Mom and dad, they don't understand. 
I wish I could have pizza with my friends and drive out of this town forever. Like that was exactly where I was at <laughs> when I was in high yeah. school. <laughs> uh, for me, for me, when I think about like the first time that I was like, that's me, it's definitely Skate from Streets of Rage 2, a Sega Genesis game. Uh, and, yes. and I think part of it is the same, a similar thing as with Gita, which is like, that's a kid who cares about the world and wants to like make a difference. But also like Skate was named Skate because he had rollerblades. I was yeah. lacing up my rollerblades to go around the neighborhood in all the time because it was the 90s and that was cool. Uh, that was a game that was drawing a lot on the music I was hearing. That's a game that that has music that's inspired by house and R&B and hip hop, yeah. which I didn't hear in games. And there was such an environment in that game that felt like it was drawing from a real space I was in. Mm. And it felt respectful because there's like a flip side to that question, which is when's the first time you looked at a game and you said, hey, that's not me. Yeah. And for me... That was probably Street Fighter Two, a game I really liked. Oh no, but Balrog! I don't know if you remember Balrog, Balrog. Uh, who, who is this like caricature of Mike Tyson specifically, yes. uh, who is just this like big dumb black brawler. Yeah. And I remember being like, man, and that game is filled with stereotypes. Yeah. Like, that game is is top to bottom stereotypes. Yeah. But I remember feeling disappointed because it's like I just wanted the character who I could vibe with. And I, I mean, the thing and the truth is like Ken and and Ryu and Guile, I loved those characters as a kid. Yeah. And that's why when I got to see Balrog, who was this like gross stock tropey stereotype of what a black man is supposed to be, I remember being like, I remember being like, that's not my dad. I wanted to see my dad Ooh. in that game and that was not my dad. You know what I mean? Similarly yeah. to that, I remember like Dalsim. And like, I grew up hungry for Indian representation in anything oh ever. And here is this weird, lanky creepazoid who's got a bunch of skulls. I was not having it. I was looking for Ravi Shankar in the video game world. They did not give it so, to me. So you're, Gita, you're, you're gonna not like this, but the first character that I looked at the screen and thought, oh, that's me, was actually Dalsim. Whoa, wild. Yo. I Why? think okay no let okay let me break this down. I think I was just I can't remember any time before that. I'm trying to rack my brain right now. This is super wild. But there weren't really black characters that you can control in a game. And if you would have asked me when I was a kid, "Hey, do you want to control right. a black character?" I would have just said, "I pff, I don't care. Just don't matter to me, whatever." But I think Maybe subconsciously, I had never seen that. And so the first thing that even looked black, which at that stage, Dalsim did to me, I was just, shoot, cool, I'm down, like, <laughs> let's go. I mean, Dalsim, Dalsim has the cool powers. He can shoot the flame. He can stretch his arm across the screen. Now, if you would have sat me down, if you would have said, now, Dexter, you realize <laughs> Dalsim, this, no. It, I I probably could have explained, I probably could have understand, yes, Dalsim is supposed to be from India. And also, man, if you think about that, mm, yeah, that Yoga Flame stuff's a little bit weird. Yeah. But at the stage, me as like a second or third grader, I thought, oh, I'm a skinny black kid. Here's a skinny black kind of man on the screen. Cool, let's go. This is then after that, I, after that, obviously, I, I think I moved on and then my go-to character became Chun-Li, which I don't know what that says about me. But 
spinning bird at kick. first. Like it's just, it's she's just good. Like that's yeah, Chunli's just good. At, at a certain point, I was just I like the fast character who can just kick yeah. people in the face. Yeah, let's go. But but no, nah, Austin, you're totally right about um, Balrog because I think even if even Balrog's official character bio, like his likes and dislikes, I think his likes are something like likes shiny things. Uh. And his right. catchphrase, yes. his catchphrase yes. is time to get paid. And it's just, yep. this is just. See, it's like. It gets to a point where it's, yeah, it, it, it's almost funny. It, it, the, one of the things that I think is super interesting about this is it speaks to what we are looking for in some way. Mm. Um, which is to say we wanted or maybe still want representation on the screen to be filled with symbols and codes of our culture, but the right ones. And I bring that up because I often think about character creators as being a potential way to address the representation question, but not necessarily a perfect one. Because like, I remember making basically my own face in Mass Effect 1 with my Commander Shepard, but he wasn't voiced by a black man and his life wasn't black, but that was me on, like that's me. Look, that's that Commander Shepard looks like me. Um, and that's kind of like, I, I'm still working through how I feel about that. Cause on one hand, I like that. I actually like being able to play a game where I sit down and I make a character who looks sort of like me. And I also don't have to live through racism. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> but at the yeah. same time, there's a degree to which it feels like, uh, just like you've, you've changed the skin, but not the character, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm the Sims mega fan. So I, that is a game that has in many ways like an incredibly robust character creator. And they've gone Mm. great lengths in order to make it so that more people can see themselves in this particular game, more kinds of bodies, more kinds of people, more genders, more sexual orientations. But I I cannot find a hairstyle that looks like this. It just does not (laughs) exist in the world of The Sims, you know, Afro-textured hair is something that most games haven't really figured out. But when you are confronted with that in a character creator, I don't know, like, I do, like Austin, like knowing, like, oh, maybe this is a world that does not have the baggage that is, like, tied to black hair as much so that this becomes less of an issue. But it also just becomes, like, I, I... I want to be able to see myself in the same way that other players do. Representation isn't mm. like the end-all be-all of issues within the gaming community, but just the right. mere ability to create someone that even looks like me. I mean, Austin, you and I met around the time you wrote this incredible essay on just on your Tumblr about how whack it felt to have to keep tanning yourself in order to make your Animal Crossing character black. That's true. Right. Yeah, Animal Crossing New Leaf, the previous Animal Crossing game, uh, did not let you pick a skin color. Uh, and instead, the way that you, if you wanted to look like you had a little bit of melanin in your skin, what you had to do was go tan every day, which during the summer just meant playing the game outside, you know, in, in the game outside. Right. But if it wasn't the summer, it meant going to an island every day and just kind of walking around and soaking up the sun so that your character would get that skin color. Right. And then you had to maintain it like it was a tan because uh, over over time you would grow increasingly pale. 
Uh, and that's just like, no one thought about this as part of this game. And that's messed up when the game is all about expression. It's all about creating a space where you can kind of see yourself and your interests and decorate your room and pursue the stuff that you're interested in. And it just wasn't, it just, it clearly wasn't a priority for that team. The new Animal Crossing game has fixed that and I'm grateful for it because right. I, I love yeah. that series so much. Um, but, and I think one of the, thing that's, the things that's interesting going back to what Gita was saying about The Sims, uh, is what often happens in a case like this, whether that is you learn how to tan yourself in the game to get yourself the representation, or individuals outside of the company do their own solutions as modifications to the game, is that players have to try to solve those problems themselves. Right. Uh, and I think it's so interesting how much of that labor of trying to make a game more inclusive falls onto the, the laps of, of fans who then take that banner up and then have to go do that work on behalf of themselves, but also kind of on behalf of the company, filling in the gaps as best they can uh, that other players just don't need to do. Uh, I think that's really fascinating and kind of troubling in some yeah. ways. Well, white players of The Sims don't have to download a mod in order to get a skin tone that looks like theirs. I mean, they might have to, right. but they have a lot more options than black players do currently. Right. And uh, they have a lot more options right. when it comes to the makeup that comes in the game. It just looks a lot better on the lighter toned skin tones. And you know, for a while, I feel like Sims fans in the Sims fandom were pretty content to like have this ecosystem be as it was. It was just black players that were speaking out. You know, we recently got to a point with the Sims players that uh, many of the largest white voices in the fandom, like Deligracy and uh, Lil Simsy, Kayla Sims, much love to you. Uh, they made videos pointing out these issues that had been known to the fandom since release. That not only were the skin tones just like not adequate for most of the black player base, not me. Like they, mm -hmm. no one has this mixed race skin tone in the game. Like any game at all, I am always between two shades. If you do swatches and not a slider. Even if you do a slider, I always get the undertone wrong. It's problems. Being so beautiful has its issues. Um, but <laughs> it, it was like such a disappointment that it took white players speaking up to get this issue solved. But it was also mm. just like, I can't think of many other games that would acknowledge that this thriving mod community speaks to a lack in the game itself, one that they are striving to correct now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that we got a bunch of not white people talking about this right now because yeah, these totally. are because because you know these are these are things that may not occur to every player because I'm thinking you know a lot of games now do have that character select you know that character creation ability and you might be the kid in your neighborhood who you could you could be black you could be whatever and you just sort of assume that oh I guess game characters they don't really look like you yeah that's just the thing but then you go over to your friend bobby's house and you realize oh bobby could make a character that looks just like him because he has 10 different options <sighs> for what the hair could look like or you know putting freckles on or all the different shades and there's one option for making hair that looks like my dad's hair or my mom's hair or my hair right uh, you know what i mean and so i think that's when you it, i think for a lot of people actually that's when maybe they realized when they were younger that, oh, games weren't made, games were made with other people in mind, but not me. I don't know if either you grew up where, I, I think everyone here wears glasses. Uh, I remember <laughs> being in a situation where it was like, oh, 
I don't get to pick the frames off the wall. I have to go pick the frames out of the shelf because these are the frames that your insurance yep. covers or that your, you know right. what I mean, your your government insurance yep. covers. Uh, mm. And that's what it felt like making characters as a kid in like wrestling video games if I wanted to make a black character. And, and what that meant was I often, uh, in some ways it meant, okay, well, I'm just going to make a million characters of a billion different races because I just want to use all the hair types or I'm going to be like, I'm going to make this just look goofy but yeah. I want that expressivity. I want my black character to have Goku spiky hair now because that's a way to communicate something yeah. that the two other black hair options, which is like a fro, a close crop that isn't really a fade, but it's close enough, yeah. and then bald, like those aren't, aren't, aren't all encompassing enough. There isn't a variety there. Right. Uh, and, and so you end up doing other different things to kind of fill in that gap, which which has created its own, you know, kind of subculture of uh, inside of the kind of black gamer community that I think a lot of us have gotten familiar with or have had that moment with. You Here's know? something mm, that just has mm. to go from all character creators real quick is the gag afro. It's over. We need to stop that. It's bad. Yeah. Every time I see that ship in a game with a character creator now, I'm just like, do you have black people on your team? Because no, people didn't even wear their hair like that when big, you know, I'm black and I'm proud afros were in the style. It's just a wig that white people wear and it always has been. Stop it. <laughs> it's whack. Things- it's whack because I used to have one. <laughs> like I kinda- <laughs> Damn, don't drag Dex. <laughs> Um, but I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. It, there, there's a there's a level in in which it's oh we're just having it here. It's like of all the black hairstyles you could put in, all you put is the afro. Like we know what you mean at that yeah. point. That, oh, it's just sort of this is the fun one that nobody actually has. Yeah. Just, okay, if you do that, I need to like I need the Jerry curls in there. I'm definitely gonna need right. the high top fade. I'm gonna need a whole bunch of other things in there before you put in the the thing that most people don't actually have. Just give me the options. And I think actually. Austin, the way you put it, I mean, it, it, the way you put it in that a lot of times you're right. It does feel like everybody else has, you know, they go into the optometrist and they have all the nice glasses on the shelf, you know, in the displays. And then it's just, okay, where's my glasses? No, actually, sorry, son. Sorry. Yeah. You one of these we, three. we got, we have two big, thick, you know, nerdy looking <laughs> yep. joints in the drawer. One of them came you can have one of those. with the tape on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got the yeah. we got the one already with the tape on the noise. Pick pick that one because that's you for know, there you. Are other, that's what we said. There are other metaphors. Like it's it's how many colors do you have on your palette? It's it's how many songs do you have on your mixtape? You know what I mean? Like yeah. that you want to have that breadth of experience because the the, the breadth of being a person is really wide. Um, If I could just pivot the conversation a little bit, one of the things that we've kind of talked around a little bit here Mm. is the way in which being online affects fandom. And Dexter, I'm curious for you, um, because I think you and I are about the same age, I'm curious if being online in fandom was like a unique experience for you or or, or what that experience was like. Man. Were you... One second, let me put this earpiece back in. Like, were you um, were you on message boards? Did you grow up in chat rooms? Because yeah. that part of fandom, I think, is so is so interesting and and could you know kind of deserves more attention. Yeah, man. I mean, yo, I was hundred percent in. I mean, star. Shout out to Starman.net. Shout out to all the <laughs> completely out of their mind. <laughs> 
way too, way too into Earthbound for anybody's good. Um, but uh, I got my Earthbound thing back there, but uh, my box right there. But, but yeah, no, I was definitely it was, you know, in some ways I thought that, you know, that was somewhere where, oh, everybody's into this. We're all kind of on the same page kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was that because of the anonymity? Was that like, listen, all they know is I'm posting as, you know, Earthbound, Earthbound Fan 32. <laughs> they don't necessarily know who Dexter is. I can kind of make my own self here and then speak into this fandom, be part of this fandom without getting over the hurdle of would these people like me offline, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. There was definitely a point where, you know, I knew that if I posted something, people would just see me as, oh, here's another, here's another Earthbound fan. Here's another Shenmue fan. You know what right. I mean? Here's another Blaster Master fan and who who likes the game and wants them to make another one. Why won't they make another one? You know what I mean? <laughs> I why do. won't you why won't they make they did, but we yeah. want more. Yeah. Make more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was yeah. before fandom became what I've started calling inside my head the fandom industrial complex. Where it's just a system that like feeds into read pop conventions and then back into uh -huh. Funko Pops and then back into people losing their mind on Tumblr.com. You know, there was a real sense yeah. once the Harry Potter fandom became the largest fandom on the internet, overtaking stuff like X Files and Buffy, which had previously been enormous fandoms, like the most dramatic, where it was. Now, if you were a person who was a fan on the internet, you were not only like an Earthbound fan. You were not just in the Earthbound fandom. You were a part of fandom as a whole. Like the, it stopped being a noun and started being a verb. It was like something to describe something you yeah. did. And that was when I feel like conversation started to shift to be less about who's like got the most knowledge about this topic into how do we relate to these texts as people. And it's really interesting to see, you know, how that's evolved into this place where fandom identities are ones that are as important to people as their racial identity, <laughs> or I think to maybe a certain class of person are as important to them as their racial identity, um, where people just really go bingo bongo bonkers if you insult their comfort character or wherever, um, when we're also... We are finally able actually to have conversations about what it is not just like to be a, a fan of Shenmue, but what's it like to be a black fan of Shenmue? And I remember being on message boards, yeah. like I was on a Digimon message board as a 10 year old, which was something I shouldn't have been doing, but I did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just thinking like, these people don't understand why I relate to Mimi so much, even though she's not like a black character, there is something like a little mm. bit like, I don't know. She's like, sweetie, you want, she's icy. <laughs> I don't know. I just really like her. And I didn't know how to explain what it was I was relating to about her to a bunch of people that didn't know I was black. And they probably, I didn't know what race they were either. There, while there is comfort in that and being able to take on the identity of just a Digimon fan, there will be times when other parts of your life will want, you'll want to integrate that into that other identity and that's when, I mean, I avoided being a person who played games online for an incredibly long time because I yeah. deal with enough shit as a black woman in the world. And I didn't want to have to continue to justify myself and my ability to be in spaces when I was participating in a hobby. 
Gita, I think one of the things that's interesting there is that you kind of hit on this kind of second stage of fandom production or gatekeeping a little bit here, which is, uh, it's not just, hey, who are you? Are you, you know, what is your gender? What is your race? Blah, 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 blah. But inside of fandom, there's all of this stuff that communicates to, are you a real fan? Right? Are you actually, uh, uh, you know, a a Buffy fan? Are you actually a Halo fan? Are you actually a gamer? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so fascinated also by the ways in which that process happens. Um, And I I think it's hard to talk about fandom in 2020 without addressing the kind of elephant in the room of the ways in which that has been really hostile and toxic for years. Yo, I mean, that's the the big thing though, right? Is I think... For a lot of people, like you were saying, Gita, for a lot of people, the identity of gamer goes above anything else. Like you are a gamer mm-hmm. and that's it. And and a real gamer would not complain about this part of the game. Yeah, a or real, a real gamer, gamer would not point out more that this, this bothers them. It doesn't care about representation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, for me, I can, I can think off bat that I know that. You know, back, you know, I, I've been a Shenmue fan, right? And so, but if you go back and I know that if I try to have a conversation about, man, I love, I mean, the first Shenmue was amazing. That black character, Tom, though, Ooh. I, I don't know about that. The, the, the dude, what is he doing? Selling hot dogs or whatever? He's selling hot dogs, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's and like, like the worst in the worst. It, like it's so fake. it's so it's so cringy. It's so cringy. And yeah. I mean, yo, because we we could take back not to sort of dip into something we were talking about earlier again, but I remember, yo, let's talk crazy taxi. Crazy taxi to this day, my character still is BD Joe, the black dude. Even yeah. though it makes no difference in gameplay. Even though he's super cringy, I just happened to use a dude. But that was a point where I looked at the screen and said, this is, d- who who did they pick up? <laughs> Why did they do that? They could have not, they could have not had any black characters in this game. And I honestly would have been okay with it. It's just, but they put one in and it feels like they just put it in kind of as a joke. And he was, it's like, let's have somebody with green hair and a black guy. Like those two things are the same thing. It's just, oh, it's just kind of fun to have this fun, wacky black character. It's just, you couldn't have, you shouldn't have done that. And it's mad cringy. And I definitely am not that guy. But but, <laughs> but if but if you, you know, what I'm saying is if if you if you point that out, there's a point at which if you step into a message board, you step into a conversation online and you say, man, I love this game. I wish they wouldn't have made that black character so stereotypical, or I wish they wouldn't have done this to this gay character or whatever. Yep. Then all of a sudden, oh, well, you're not a real gamer. You're just some, you know, you're just here to complain. Do you really even play games? You know, like they try to pull your gamer card. Dude, it's just, dude I wrote a review for a game called Monster Hunter World that came out in, I want to say 2018, mm. 2018, 2019. I forget. They're going to see this is it. I've just given them an opening. They're going to now say I'm a fake I'm a fake gamer because I didn't know the year. Um, in it, I write for 3,000 words. This is like one of those thesis statement, you know, reviews. I was yeah. really taken by it. And there was two paragraphs in that in that review of a, you know, 20 paragraph, 30 paragraph review uh, about hunting and about the ways in which 
This is a game where you hunt these big like dinosaur and dragon-like monsters. Um, and in the game, it, it, the premise of this specific edition of Monster Hunter is that you've traveled across the sea to a new world and the monsters are in the way between you and the resources you want to get. Um, they eventually give a little bit more than that, but that's still fundamentally your motivation. Mm -hmm. Other Monster Hunter games have talked about and had other excuses for why you're hunting the monsters. It could be because they have been corrupted by a disease. It could be because of overcrowding, a bunch of other stuff. But in this one, it was like some real manifest destiny <laughs> stuff. And so for two paragraphs, I talked about that. I, I mentioned the Trump son who is like deep into hunting and trophy hunting and posing mm -hmm. and the ways in which that kind of uh, came into this game that for, again, 2,500 other words, I was like, this is so good. The way it feels to move around is great. The the design of all the characters is incredible. The music, da, 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 da. And what I got back from the audience was this is BS. You're a fake gamer. I bet he mm. didn't even play it. I can't believe he's talking about politics in this review about Monster Hunter. Da, 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 da. Just yeah. very judgmental and dismissive of the perspective because I, I dared to raise the question, hey, is this thing that we all love together actually like not perfect? Is yeah. there maybe one way in which it could be better? Or are there ways in which it's playing in a space that is complicated and that has a, 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 a politics that's caught up in more than just it's fun to kill dinosaurs sometimes. I remember yeah. um, uh, and so, I yeah. wrote an article. I've never played Final Fantasy VII. I, I've said it. I'm so sorry. I've played many other wow. video games in my lifetime, but just not that one. It came out like in between me having Brave. access to a PlayStation that could play it. Um, Brave and thing then, to like, say. When it, yeah. Brave thing when to it say. finally got remastered on various things, I was in college and like I was more interested in developing a drinking problem. So <laughs> from there, I, I wrote this article <laughs> at Kotaku where I was reporting on fandom, which is something I do quite often. You know, I report on the things that people say about things that they are fans of. You know, those communities, I think, are as important as the games themselves. And that was something we really strove to do at Kotaku was continue to cover those communities and what they do. And at the time that we were first getting voiced previews of what the characters would sound like in the Final Fantasy VII Remake, there was a lot of black players were themselves yeah. saying the way that they have, you know, the voice they gave to Barrett in this sounds high-key racist and high-key like he is about to go to church. Like he is delivering a sermon. <laughs> like it was, you know, someone overdubbed it with uh -huh. church organs. It was a very fun yeah. moment of black joy, I felt, like to watch people clown on it. And also, you know, not Mr. everyone T was saying it was racist. Everyone were T like, this is just funny game. to me. And I'm, I yeah. like it because it is funny. I am still getting yeah. Facebook, like personal Facebook messages at my personal Facebook that is in very much cloistered off from the rest of my social media and more or less private. I'm still finding new messages from people saying that I'm the real racist for talking about race. Of course. People of are course. very, that very stuff happens protective. All the time. And I think, oh, it's important to note that this is not something that comes entirely from the community itself. People have become protective of this identity as people have learned that you can leverage a fandom for a lot of money. Yes. Yes. Well, this is the funniest arc, right? Is I think about when you first started writing about fandom on the internet, hmm. there was a pushback against it because fandom was supposed to be this unserious thing that didn't deserve journalistic time, right. that was uh, not valuable to anything. Uh, things like fan fiction and fan art were wastes of yeah. time. 
uh, from people who were playing games for hundreds of hours, right? It was okay to play Destiny for 300 hours, but don't draw fan art, don't do fanfic, or if you do it, that's not worth your attention or yeah. time. And I mean, honestly, and, and we've talked about this before, a lot of that is because a lot of fandom is is kind of femme-coded and and that is uh, you know there's there's degradation happening there there's misogyny in the space yeah it, until the thing happened that you just said which is companies realize that fandom is popular with a subset of fans how do we then kind of legitimize it corporatize it turn it into a source of revenue how do we make it so that we have a spotlight for the best fan art this week as a way of keeping the fandom engaged blah 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 and I, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that stuff is bad but I do think that it's important to understand that relationship was one in which fandom used to be the butt of the joke and now because it's become a source of value it's been allowed to be to be kind of publicly valued publicly acclaimed but it's because it has been monetized in that yeah. way yeah. and that can be really frustrating if you're in fandom and you're just like i just want to make cool stuff i'm not trying to make anyone else money yeah i mean it's it's wild because if you think about it it's just like you said there was definitely a point at which being a fan of something you know being a real fan being in the fandom meant you're just a huge nerd and nobody takes yep. you seriously. And even the game company just kind of eh, yep. stop liking that because we want to make a new game and you should buy yeah. that, not this other thing. Like, see the and entire then, relationship that the Super Smash Brothers competitive community has with Nintendo, essentially. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Right. And, and then, but then it, at a certain point, the game companies realize wait a second, if we just sort of continue to feed them little stuff here and there, feed them little tidbits and get involved with them in any way, shape, or form. You know, have an art showcase, have a song remix showcase, what, whatever the case may be. We can make money off of this. We can keep making money off of some IP that we've done, that we've made forever ago, years ago, right? You also end up like having a like criticism-proof shield, essentially. Like any like the yeah. people exactly that yeah the people who send me mean messages when I write an article critical of like Overwatch's skins for its non-white characters or point out the fact that they still don't mm. have a black woman in their game. You know, they're doing it believing that they are defending the workers of Blizzard. And like that yeah. is the thing that is wild to me that corporate fandom, corporate sanctioned fandom has been able to leverage the need for validation so strongly that, you know, people in fandom believe that harassing journalists who just are trying to do their jobs is the same thing as protecting workers. Yeah. Totally. And the far end of that includes stuff like the way Ubisoft uh, teamed up with Hit Hit Record, Hit Record. Yeah, the, I don't know how to pronounce Joseph Gordon-Levitt's yeah. uh, kind of crowdsourcing uh, entrepreneurial startup. Um, but Ubisoft teamed up with Hit Record to try to get assets for a game that they're making called Beyond Good and Evil Two. I believe they also are working with them for stuff on Watch Dogs Two, or sorry, Watch Dogs Legion. Um, and in uh, in the process, what they're basically doing is asking fans to submit spec work, which is yeah. uh, which is kind of creative to do work labor. For free. Yeah, work for free, and if we like it, maybe we'll include it in the game, and we'll pay you, you know, we'll pay you some sort of amount, not uh, as much as we would if we hired an in-house artist or an in-house musician. Uh, but more importantly, do that work for free, submit it, and and hey, if we like it, maybe we'll we'll tap you on the shoulder. Uh, and, and to me, that is like the uh, unfortunate logical conclusion of the process uh, that kind of recognized the value inside of fan work and decided to commoditize it, decided to try to like 
turn it into another engine for the production of these commodities. And that's really frustrating because when I think about my earliest days in fandom, when I think about going into an IRC chat room as a teenager where I was playing, again, wrestling video games and sending created characters back and forth via a memory card and a, a special accessory <laughs> that let me hook it up to my computer, when I was downloading videos that people were uploading from like VHS tapes of games that they loved, when I think about writing fan fiction, sharing art with fans for franchises I loved as a teenager and, and in my young 20s, there was such an excitement there and such a, an expressivity because a lot of what was happening was fans were filling in the gaps in the franchises they loved in a way that the companies couldn't or refused to do. And when, the, when a creative company kind of steps in and says, okay, that's good, keep doing it, but shape it to be more useful for yeah. us, it feels yeah. like you lose something in in the the kind of breadth of expression. Harry Potter, like so many things, is such a tiresome thing to talk about at this specific moment in time, but... It really went through this arc that I think demonstrates like what happens when you become beholden to a company to decide what is even possible for you to imagine, right? I was a big, this is such an, I can't believe I'm making this confession, but I sincerely believed that Sirius Black and Remus Lupin were actually in canon canonically gay and were going to get together. And JK Rowling has made it very clear that Remus Lupin is for some reason straight, <laughs> I don't understand it, but it's her world, so I guess that's fine. Uh, it, it, yeah. But during that time, like there was a real trend between books three and four, where people would add to like their live journal profiles. You know, Sirius Remus. You know, their love is so canon, and searching for acknowledgement from Warner Brothers, from J.K. Rowling, was the most important thing. You know, having your little god come down from on high and be like, yes, I do agree with you, and you are correct. I mean, it was the whole reason mm -hmm. why the Ron Hermione, Harry Hermione fan, like, ship war was as ridiculous and dramatic as it was, because they knew one of them would end up being anointed by JKR. But now we've gotten to this point where people hate JK Rowling so much that they are creating fan works that are in direct opposition to the the series that she has that she has brought up things that she would never consider to include like uh, there's this great fic that I read recently and it's just about Dean Thomas meeting um, the Blaze Zabini who is the best character in Harry Potter that doesn't have any content about him at all uh, he's an African wizard whose mom is like a beautiful like black widow I always imagine her as being played by Iman. Um she, it's just called Do Black Wizards Nod? And it is set at the, you know, station platform nine, nine and three quarters. And it's Dean Thomas trying to figure out what black wizards do when they meet each other. Does, does, do they still have to nod? Is that something that he would understand? And is there mm -hmm. any kinship, like, it, between us now as black people, even in the wizarding world? That's something that J.K. Rowling just doesn't have the ability to think about, really. Um, she, there's also, like, you know, it's become very common in Harry Potter fandom now to uh, draw or write fic about Harry as if he is uh, Desi, as if he's Indian from the UK, which makes sense with a lot of the things mm. that ways that she characterized the Potter family. But, you know, like, I don't think it would immediately occur to J.K. Rowling, a writer who's made it very clear that she can only really write four or five characters, that you know, that she's written something that speaks to Desi people and to emphasize that, to highlight it. 
I think you definitely, you know, I think the what has caused that sort of backlash against the idea of fanfic and fan art is the sanctioning from corporate corporations. Um, you know, if you are operating outside of the narrow space that they've given you, then you're disrespecting, mm -hmm. disrespecting that fiction. If you are, you know, writing a fic for fun that takes place in an alter universe or ships two characters that have not canonically gotten together, then that's disrespect. That's disrespect to the creators. So don't do that. So kind of like basically, like I was saying at the beginning, like at first, anybody who is in the fandom, who was a really big fan of something, they're a bunch of nerds. The companies don't really know what to do with them. But then at a certain point, the companies realize, wait a second, we can make money off of this. Yeah. But now it's like, okay, here is how to be a fan. Participate in yeah. this contest. Draw these characters. Anything outside of that you're disrespecting what we made. But then it, they don't really have to say that because they've managed to kind of create the mentality among a big portion of a lot of different fandoms that, yeah. oh, if you're not doing it this certain way or if you criticize anything, you just disrespect it. You don't actually like this game. You don't actually like this franchise. You must be a fake fan. There is like a message board thread where someone said that me, Austin, and Rob Zachney, who's managing editor at Vice Gaming, should have our throats torn out for mild criticisms of The Last of Us 2. You know? That's all well, you gotta say. <laughs> yeah, what, what can you do? Love to be on the internet. I mean, the thing, that I, the thing that I will say that I think keeps me hopeful is that I think people uh, in a broad way are always going to remain one step ahead. They're going to invent new ways of exploring their interests mm. that have not yet been captured by corporate interests. Uh, uh, they're going to come up with with new ways of celebrating, communicating, and talking to each other uh, that are uh, going to inevitably make the kind of kind of corporatized version of it corny as hell. Um, and and that is like that's what keeps me going is that like I see fans today find new things that they love uh, that mm -hmm. have not yet been kind of sanded down, all of the most interesting edges removed, uh, made rounded and safe. Um, and and that happens again and again and again, and the cycle continues. And and I do have hope, and and that that like the next generation of fans will hopefully learn from uh, things like Gamergate that things like the most toxic and hostile elements of a fandom need to be addressed head on, need to be pushed out of that space, uh, and that inside of the space there's a, a kind of a a proliferation of different types of expression of whether that is saying that these two characters are dating or whether that's introducing mm. your own character to the mix or increasingly making a game of your own or making a fan comic or making, you know, something that that adds your touch to it. Uh, I, I do think that we're going to, I don't think the end of this is a cliff where all things that are produced are just already owned by a company. I really do believe that we're going to get, uh, we're going to continue to see this cycle continue, which is some small, uh, uh, you know, uh, benefit at least, some some small consolation. If you look at something like Blazeball, I think that's a great example of that. Yeah. Totally. That totally. was a game that came out, uh, I mean, it's browser-based baseball betting game, essentially, and it started with very humbly just as that, you know, it had notability for having characters with really weird names, like, I don't know, like, um, Hot Dog Fingers was uh, the last name of a character I remember. Jalen Hot Dog Fingers, yeah. uh, Jessica Telephone, yep. Dominic Marijuana. Dominic Marijuana! Listen, I could go uh, on and on. I love the millennial. Wow. Rest in violence. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, but, you know, just by having a loose fiction 
and a devoted fan base, fans just created their own reality. And it doesn't supersede. Like, they've been very careful in the way they've cultivated this. The fan discord is very careful about this in general, where there's just basically there's headcanons people have for characters, some that are very common that other people have adopted as their own. But they are, you know, people who are in the Blazeball fandom are basically like, we want to see your personal vision for what Blazeball is like. We don't care about whether or not this fits with the canon of the game. They know that they're all kind of making everything up as it goes along. And that is exciting because they've created a fiction that is just more interesting than a lot of the fiction that comes out that has been slaved over by writers upon writers upon writers. Can I can I ask a kind of question out of left field? Sure. Do y'all do y'all consider yourselves gamers? Like, do you call yourself a gamer? Who's in the room? Like, who am I talking to? Do you know what I mean? Um, huh. There is. I think. I think the answer is is so complicated because I think gamer has been a contested identity from day one. I mean, this episode of the show talks about the production of the idea of the gamer. Right. So it's not like that's some natural already existing category of being. And we know it's not just people who play games. Um, though what I would love to be is in a world where the, the word gamer just meant anyone who is a fan of, of games. Uh, but that's not what it is. It's, it's something closer to, um, you know, cinemaphile or closer to, mm. uh, you know, a, a stats nerd in baseball or something like that, which is to say a subcategory of people. And right. it's a category that that uh, became the center for, you know, a center for harassment, uh, again, for gatekeeping, for uh, scaring people out of the industry altogether. Yeah. Um, we've talked already about the ways in which not everyone counts as a gamer, uh, and because of that, you end up, if you are someone who could claim the title, you also kind of go, or I, speaking for myself, I'm like, man, I don't want it. I play video mm. games. I'm a game player. I don't necessarily need to be called a gamer. What's that? What's that? What? How does that benefit me except to communicate that I'm willing to wear the badge of a group that failed to uh, push the most... Uh, hostile parts of itself out. Yeah. Like there's a way in which um, I don't want to be, you know, you, you don't necessarily want that association at this point. Um, and, and because it's referring to a group that seems like it's committed to, and, and, and it, the group is really broad, right? Because it's not, there's no council of gamers out there. Right. It's like, here are the gamer bylaws. Um, but it is an organic kind of collection of people who, spent the last decade uh, perpetrating harassment and and being or being okay with harassment inside of their spaces. And that makes it really hard to be an identity you want to claim sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that that's, if you had to say yes or no, are, are you a gamer? Yes or no? I mean, I would say no. It's weird though. Like I would say, no, I'm not a gamer, but I think about it and it doesn't make any sense, right? Like I just moved in with my partner and he likes video games. I play video games in a yeah. whole different way. Like I've got a desktop PC and a Switch and a PS4 and I am constantly looking out for new games. There's games that I play, you know, on a weekly, daily basis. My gaming sessions are like multiple hours long. David, right. my partner, love mm -hmm. him, will open up a game and play for an hour and he's satisfied. And I just like, I need a, to scratch that itch in a different way. <laughs> So it did, you know, compare it to him, like, 
I, I really had to think about like why it is that I don't feel like when I look at my gaming habits, it's the hobby I I participate in the most, like even more than like gardening, which has become my really big hobby during the pandemic has just been gardening. Um, it's I do it more than I read or watch movies, which I feel like I intellectually connect with more is, you know, reading new books. And I have a degree in cinema studies. So that says all you need to know about how much I love movies. But there's something about the community that I've actually never really felt like um, is welcoming to me. And it's not just about identity. It's like to be a mm. gamer, a lot of the time that means acknowledging that you don't actually consume any other kinds of media. And I voraciously consume everything. I very much want to <laughs> be a part of culture and to be swimming in all of the ideas that are, you know, coming up from people's creative minds that are trying to make sense of our reality and our past. I feel like, you know, you meet people who very strongly identify with the terminology gamer, and it does, even though I play games in the same way as them, I often feel like we don't have a lot to talk about. I think I'm like deeply hypocritical about this because I think about, again, when I go back to who asked me the question, the thing that comes to mind is, Am I on a date? Then no, I am not a gamer. <laughs> am I with someone who knows what Gamergate is and lived through it? No, I am not a gamer. If my Aunt Bitsy says, oh, you know Austin is a gamer, then I'm like, yeah, you damn right I'm a gamer, Aunt Bitsy. <laughs> and that's like, this is what, a gamers can be good, right? Like if it's, if it's someone who, if I have a teacher who's like, oh, I had a gamer as a student named Austin who was really great. Like, yeah, then I'm yeah. a gamer. Because then what I'm trying to do in those situations is shift the kind of broader cultural understanding of people who play games as a hobby, people yeah. who work in the industry. But when I'm talking to someone who is in the industry, who thinks about all of the production of the category of gamer that goes through marketing, that goes through all of the sort of stuff we've talked about already around race and gender, all that stuff, it's like, well, no, don't, I'm not that other sub, it's almost as if there's two groups called gamer. One of them is this kind of specialized term that people who play games use, mm. and one of them is the kind of broader uh, kind of cultural understanding. And in some weird way over time, the word gamer has become less toxic in the broad way because it just means people who play games whereas yeah. those of us who like have to deal with people who have sock puppet reddit accounts where they're sending death threats to you yeah. you're like I can't yeah. use that word yeah. with you you're just no I'm not I'm not you and I are different we are different beings you and I are not the same and that is that is like a complicated yeah, it's, thing it's wild it's wild that it, it it really did turn from at one point a gamer was just somebody who spent way too much time in their basement to yep. a gamer is somebody who sends people death threats yeah. because yep. somebody said, hey, I don't love this character 100% that came out in this new DLC or whatever. You know what I mean? And like, that's enough. That's enough. But it's, it's, also, it's also wild to me. It's also wild to me that like, I play a hell of a lot of video games, but y'all play a lot of video games. And yeah. the, all three of us in here, we're very hesitant about using the title gamer to refer to ourselves. That's just wild to me. You know, I just realized though the one instance where the person who's asking me and I'll always answer, yes, I'm a gamer, is when other black people are talking mm. to me, always. Black people, Ooh. I mean, I don't mm. think it's really seldom acknowledged that black people's video game fandom is different from white people's video game fandom. Like I always used to say, and this has been true like my entire adult life, it's like every single black man in America has played Battlefield and at least 
knew, knew somebody who owned an Xbox 360 and played that a lot. You know? Yes. Like, it, it didn't matter where you were from or what part of life you were in. My old boss at this crappy retail job I had in Chicago, he found out I play video games. He's like, yo, you like that Battlefield? It's like, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's... So I'll probably have I'll probably have to make this the last the last oh sorry subtopic of conversation. No, it's all good because we we have so much so much to get through. But um, no, it, it really it really does occur to me that a lot of I think a lot of game companies don't really even realize that they have these big segments of the population that are fans of their game. You know, what I mean, they don't even realize. Yeah. Or or they might realize because the stats are there, right? I don't mm. have them in front of me. The last time I looked at the stats, uh, you know, black men do, uh, to, to use a, a, a kind of media term, black men over-index as console owners in America, which is to say, yeah. uh, for you know, there, there's a higher percentage of, of black men who own consoles than you would think that there would be, basically. Right. Um, and the companies know that. They have those statistics. The thing that ends up being worth thinking about is then why are they not marketed to in the same way? Um, why is it that women who we know play games 50% like down the line, just like men do, right? Like that, that number is like very clear. Half of people who play games are women mm. um, or, or, you know, give or take um, th that they are still to this day less advertised to with certain exceptions. Again, in this episode, we talked about The Sims. I think in conversation, we've talked about Animal Crossing, stuff like that. And yet they're not marketed to. And so the, the question there ends up being why? And you know, one of the, one of the big answers to that uh, comes back again to the question of, uh, of the market, of, of what capitalism feels comfortable or reliable about. Um, uh, you know, there's a, there, there are kind of video game studies people who have theorized basically that in the response to the crash, in response to the, the console crash mm. that happened in the 80s, uh, game companies rushed to young white boys because they were a reliable bet for people who could get their parents to buy uh, consoles for them, to buy video games for them. Right. Uh, there is a sort of trepidation from these companies at the idea that, hey, well, maybe we don't want to try to sell to, to, to like black men because what if they just don't have spending money this time next year? Why should we try to mm -hmm. lean into that market? And that sucks. Yeah, like, yeah. Meanwhile, um, and I think that know. sucks because we know that games mean more than that to us. Games are not just products for us. They are things that, that we connect to the same way we connect to music or film or books. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, you know, while corporate suits are making decisions about not marketing the black people, I go on a bus in the south side of Chicago and like at least one person on that bus, one black man on that bus has a PS Vita. You know, that's a system that right. went yeah. was it's notorious for being a loss for for Sony. But the people who bought it reliably were black people and they did not invest yes. in that market. <laughs> I can't tell you why they didn't do it, but I mean None. Black people None. know why. Black people know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a huge L for no reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Black people could have put the Vita on their back and skyrocketed <laughs> it to the moon, man. But they they just decided, or, or I can't just say decided, but it just never happened. And it's it weird. Never to happened. See. It never happened. It's weird to see. Oh, well, the the thing there too that's that's so interesting to me is like, well, what are we talking about in terms of long term changes? That like, is the better world the one in which 
there are advertisements for the next Battlefield specially made for to air during shows that we know black folks watch? Like, is the thing that we're fighting over, like, damn, I wish they made advertisements for the audience who loves BET. Is that really the best world we can imagine for ourselves? Um, or do we want something more transformative than that, that totally rethinks the industry in a way that lets more voices in, not just as consumers, but on the development side, in the fandom side, all throughout. Because that is a world where instead of kind of, I have this phrase that I say a lot, which is that as a marginalized uh, a person in the world, you're often left to, to confuse scraps for feasts. You're so mm. hungry that you see, for instance, a little black boy with rollerblades in Streets of Rage 2, and you go, oh, that's me. That's me right there. I'm like, man, that's not you. Or, or, you're, or, you're, or you're me and seeing, you know, the lanky, stereotypical Indian yeah. dude in Street Fighter 2 and thinking, hey, maybe that's me. Hey, I'm kind of skinny and, and brown. Is that, that's, that to me fills me up. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's delicious. And I think we have to stop taking scraps as feasts. Yeah. We have to be willing to say we want more systemic uh, changes in the industry. I want people of color. I want, I want women. I want you know, non-binary and gender non-conforming folk all throughout the industry in positions of power. I want them to be represented the way that we're represented in real life. Yeah. Because because when that happens, the the thing at the other end of it will just be better. There will be more games for more people. There will be stuff that that represents mm. parts of life that right now don't get the focus that they deserve. Games can do so many incredible things. And instead, what we end up arguing over is like, man, they don't sell shooters to black people enough. And it's so <laughs> yeah. like uh, to, to quote to quote Tom Hardy in Inception, dream a little bigger, darling. It's yeah, you, know? you don't want to Yo. get caught playing the make thinking about art on the terms of capitalism. You want what we don't want is for games to be marketed to more markets and for black people to be a viable market. I want video games to understand black people. Well, black people understand video games. What I don't see from the major studios that are making them and a lot of indie studios is an understanding of the fact that black people exist and they have lives that are different from white people. And in order to make that kind of art, we just need to change the entire industry. So it's easy as that. So just get cracking. Okay. <laughs> all That's right. all. Well, on that note, <laughs> man. Light work, Yo, Dex. I, I, light work. What's up? I said light oh, yeah. work. Light work. Change light the work. We, we got it. We got it. Yo, by the, by the time this we're in the second season, hopefully we'll have it figured out. <laughs> on that note. Yo, Austin, Gita, thank you so much. I'm sure we can keep going on this for hours, uh, but we're going to try to wrap it up now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having us. No doubt. No doubt. But and also you definitely come back soon. We have a lot more to dig into on this season of Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you. 
We're back. Now it's time to break it down with the Reset Roundtable. Join me this time with the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker, Vice Game Senior Staff Writer, Patrick Clifford. What's up, y'all? Good to be here. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Patrick, I know that you've been covering regulation. I mean, not covering regulation since Mortal Kombat days, but... Patrick, I know that you've been. Yeah, <laughs> I pretty mean, close. I, I've been writing about games since I was fourteen. So yeah, that is amazing. Not, like, that that, that is off. that is a hell of a, <laughs> since you're fourteen. No, it's, a, it's a curse. It's a terrible thing. It's not something to brag about. Very humble. That is amazing. But yo, so Patrick, I know that you've been writing a lot about regulation, going all the way back to Mortal Kombat days. So, what is legacy of those Lieberman hearings? I think the, the legacy of the, the Lehman hearings is sort of the video game industry growing up in a certain way. You know, what what defines a video game medium as art? Is it that it declares itself art or the world around it recognizes it at art? It's mostly the latter. And like the government regulation was them stepping in and saying, hey, like if you are a medium, if you are creative, well, then like find a way to create institutions around yourself that uh, respect that. And then, you know, years later, when the Supreme Court later goes on to recognize uh, video games as a protective artistic medium, like that's all the legacy of that are these little steps along the way. That is the 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 the, the video games becoming not just little tinkering in a basement, but becoming an institution Mm -hmm. and a medium and an industry. And the things that go around that are what, uh, you know, result in legislation, threats of legislation. And then you end up getting a Supreme Court saying, well, yeah, I guess you did your homework. I guess you've, you've got a reading board. So, uh, yeah, you've done the work. Yeah, you're you're an artistic medium now. Congratulations. Uh, you're not pornography. <laughs> the stamp of approval. <laughs> but, yeah, yo, so, I mean, I think go, going back to, you know, Mortal Kombat and games like this, right, There, this is one of these things that anybody who pays even a little bit of attention to the history of video games, it's a story that we've all heard. But I think there's a few things that get lost in there. And I mean, yo, on the real, how close did we actually come to Uncle Sam stepping in and saying, we are going to regulate video games? Was that ever a real danger? There is precedent, right? To, to some degree, at least, right? Uh, we, we know that there are laws against pornography. We know that, um, you know, you look at the history of comic books or, or, or any, a lot of other media have had some sort of uh, government-mandated or government-enforced regulation at some at some level. And when you look historically, you know it's been done before, right? And I think this is this is one of the things that gets lost in the way we talk about whatever the kind of uh, controversy du jour is, is that humans have been regulating media for as long as there has been media, right? Uh, the, the kind of uh, Cromwell administration during the English or after the English Civil War banned theaters in London, right? Um, And in fact, you can go back even before that and talk about the ways in which all the way back to ancient Greece, there was lots of debate around whether or not theater was uh, a bad thing for culture. You know, I think Plato specifically said, theater is bad because it's lies. When you go to the theater, what you're doing is you're being lied to. We got to get rid of that. And obviously Socrates before that was like, we shouldn't write things because that, you know, gets rid of your memory. Like these are old, old, old um, uh, beefs in a a real way. People are, are very invested in what does this new media do to us? How, do, how might it affect us? And so whenever there's a government or any sort of power, I think we always have to think about the ways in which it is always possible for a government to step in, for, for someone who is powerful to step in and limit what your relationship with any sort of emerging media is. I mean, we can look at the last you know, year or two thinking about the ways in which someone like Donald Trump has threatened 
to shut down TikTok, right? Like there is always there are always mechanisms by which those who are elected or those who have uh, kind of accesses to the to the to the levers of power can shut these things down if if it comes to that. Um, I think the story about games is so interesting because what we saw was a lot of kind of inter-industry squabbling. You know, Nintendo kind of famously threw some other companies under the bus in terms of the way they positioned games as being mostly toys for children and their their stuff was a little bit safer, a little more family friendly. Um, and then we saw, you know, the 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 you know creation of the ESRB and, and the self-policing instead of leaving that regulation to the to the government. And it's so interesting to think about what would have happened if the government had themselves created the ESRB or something like that. How what would that oversight have looked like? How would that affect contemporary questions of regulation like uh, you know, harassment or loot boxes or any of that other stuff? Would there already be a framework in place to address that stuff? Would they have overreached? When would they have overreached, et cetera? It's a lot to think about. Yeah. And, and the, the question is probably less about, uh, you know, I, I don't think it would have been uh, so, so clear cut as uh, the government steps in and video games are banned. But right. you know, the, the threat of regulation leads to self-regulation. Look at you know, the banning of Donald Trump from social media is the threat of regulation like causing companies to do self-regulation. And the, the moment the actual regulation comes in from the government, there's, you know, there are unintended consequences from that. They may be well-meaning consequences of regulation for whatever the regulation is being enacted to, whether it's a social media company or a video game uh, company. But, you know, the government regulators are unlikely to know the medium nearly as much as the people making it themselves. And it's, it's hard to imagine what those consequences would be. There would have been them. There would have been unintended ones. I don't think it would have been, you know, waving a magic wand and then Grand Theft Auto doesn't appear on a shelf. <laughs> but maybe maybe Grand Theft Auto isn't made because of that. Like maybe there yeah. that's, that's really, I think, would have been the consequences. Like whatever tinkering happened that was going to be specifically related to sex and violence, because right. that's what scares people in the past, scares people now, will scare people in the future. Like that, those are always the boogeymen that are held up. And the question would have been whatever came in from the, the government side, as opposed to from within the industry itself, like what would that have done creatively to the medium? Because I think if you could have shown at that, at those, the Lieberman uh, 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 hearings, if you could have shown them how realistic video games were, if you could have shown them Call of Duty yeah. in 2021, <laughs> done. Um, they would have been, yeah, like ban those video games. We're done. Like we're not doing those anymore. Um, but the reason the games have been able to, other than just sort of like the normalization of like games as a medium, mm -hmm. like the, the fact that they've been able to, put their own self-regulation in means that they were able to like figure out like what are those they figure out their own extremes as opposed to someone else figuring it out for them and then where the pushback comes is when maybe they step over and the culture steps in and mm -hmm. says like hey hey like this is making us feel weird and uncomfortable which is where loot boxes harassment right. those those don't come in from go the government those come in from the culture saying there's a problem and then someone of the government goes like well that seems like an issue I can make something out of and get people to pay attention to me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's worth saying too, and I think this speaks to the ways in which regulation is something we kind of talk about. Like it's, you know, the, the classic term on the internet, the ban hammer, where it's like, oh yeah, yeah. someone shows up with a hammer and they ban a thing. But regulation is actually a much more diffuse uh, kind of networked thing where it's a combination of laws, but also of practices. So you look at something like the ESRB has a rating called adults only. Very few things are made under the adults-only ESRB-like uh, uh, category and then sold over, you know, in, in uh, traditional brick-and-mortar stores because right. places like Walmart will not carry them, right? 
Um, and so that's a situation where there are kind of layers of regulation happening. And then, of course, now in 2021, when you look at like the Steam marketplace and online, uh, kind of the biggest online retailer of PC games, right. though that style of regulation has kind of lost its bite because Steam doesn't care. And Steam will sell you games that would traditionally get rated adults only right, right next to the next big blockbuster game from Ubisoft or EA. You're happy to um, do it. Right, totally. And so in, in some ways, it's interesting to see how old regulation models don't necessarily keep up with contemporary platforms. Right. And there was some you were talking about just a second ago, Patrick, that it's I have been a little bit surprised, actually, to see recently how many elected officials we've seen blame school shootings, mass shootings on video games. We're all old enough to remember what it was like for anybody who played Doom back when Columbine happened. Right. Yeah. I'm curious on y'all's take on it. Why are we seeing more elected officials again still? blaming video games for actual gun violence that's happening in the United States. Arguably, they've moved on to social media. Like video <laughs> games are less, <laughs> less interesting now um, than they were. I think, I think it's whatever is sort of what is the youth interested at the moment? Like it mm. was it was rap music one time. It was comics another time. It was video games another time. It increasingly feels like it's social media now, um, in part because I think you know, video games have just become so enmeshed in the culture. It isn't just a thing that the kids do. It's something that the kids do and adults do and grandparents do. And at the moment that the entire culture is engaging with the medium in this way, it becomes increasingly hard to then, you know, uh, point your finger at it and say, it's, it's, this is what is, <laughs> this is what is causing, um, you know, these, these mass shootings or other sort of ills of the culture. Um, and so I think that the acceptance of video games as just, a medium that we all enjoy kind of like has contributed to that being less of a sticking point. And then you get into the finer details, right? Whereas we're talking about harassment or um, uh, loot crates like because it's like, all right, games are here. We're not banning those things. Right. So what can we do about it now that they're here and that they're powerful? And, and importantly, what was one of the, the, the big uh, consequences of the, the creation of the ESRB, the, cre the video game industry realizing that it needed to lobby, it needed to have representatives in Congress. What the ESRB does is not just uh, take video games, rate them, rank them, and give parents a guide um, for uh, what, they, what the content is going to be in a video game. They also spend money to lobby Congress to make sure that they, <laughs> they look at social media instead of video games. You know, mm -hmm. the, the ESRB... Um, is under the, uh, the the larger company, the the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association. Like they're the ones that are putting out statements saying, "Well, actually, loot crates are like they're come on, they're not that bad. Like this is just part <laughs> of making a video game and making money, which is uh, a way of them lobbying publicly and privately, so that when there is scrutiny, when there is legislation, well, maybe it doesn't go as far as it would originally because they've spent the time and the money and the uh, personal investment to represent themselves on Capitol Hill. It just none of that was happening before. There was no one to go into a senator's office and say, hey, actually, like Sony would <laughs> cut you a check if you back off. Um, and the video just didn't do that because they, it wasn't part of their wheelhouse. They, why would you do that until you're threatened? And they suddenly started doing that. And then like, not shockingly, once... Congress starts getting checks from the video game companies, mm -hmm. they aren't necessarily as interested as regulating them um, with as much scrutiny as they were thinking of in the 90s. Totally. And I think that that's, that's like, in some ways, it can be really depressing to think about like, well, what was it that finally made it sure that video <laughs> games were enshrined as a cultural or you know, artistic medium? And the answer was the industry learned how to play ball. And that's like, that can be really like, 
gutting to think about, uh, though, though also kind of honest. Uh, and I think you know, to go back to your, your original question yeah. in terms of why even historically did, did politicians come after video games right. uh, and, and start blaming them for things like school shootings or bad grades or any of the things that games have been blamed for, right? Lower rates of literacy. My like gut on that is, I guess, I guess I have a sympathetic reading and an unsympathetic reading. My unsympathetic reading is it is a very quick and easy way to displace attention from a much more difficult question that would theoretically undercut your relationship to your base. Yeah. You cannot say guns are the problem that lead to school shootings uh, and expect a Republican electorate to vote for you if you're a Republican senator, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's not... I still think that they should say the truth, which is that video games don't do that, obviously. <laughs> but but I, I, that's that's a politically motivated. Uh, it's easy to place it from the much larger questions, like what does what does gun control in America even look like? How do we convince the populace, uh, a lot of whom love their guns and own a bunch of them, to give those up or to to accept changes in laws? Very complex situation. Yeah, uh, it's video games' fault. Very easy, right? Very very simple, clear. What if we got rid of those? And in fact, when you say something like that you know you're not going to get rid of video games, but it lets you kind of like get through the crisis moment right. because you've said something. You've, you've said pointed, something. You've pointed at a problem and you know that it won't get taken care of because you, at this point especially, you know it's it's an enshrined part of, uh, of, culture, of culture, right? And I, I think actually, I think the interesting thing there is that for all that one may say about the mainstream media, right? Mainstream media, whatever that yeah. means, is that the thing is you will actually still occasionally see a politician blame totally. video games after shooting. It does happen, but I think that the media, just you know, your average reporter has gotten a bit smarter, perhaps because they play video games themselves. Totally. And so they're all playing Warzone when they go home. Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> well, so this is my this is the other more sympathetic reading to the yeah. people who do that is it can be frightening to see something you don't understand um, that in fact. Again, we can talk about history here, right? Part of the reason why there's uh, criticism of theater, of, you know, plays in the 16th and 17th century in England is because people are going to the theater and crying and, like, yelling and getting upset and having these feelings that they don't have towards fiction ever before in, in their culture. And so there are people who see that and go, like, that's not normal. You're not supposed to go cry at a thing that isn't real. Why would that? That seems dangerous. We should just shut that down. And I, I don't, I'm not, I think those people are wrong. I think, you know, those people are wrong-headed. Uh, but I think that a similar thing happens with games where because you don't understand what the limits of interactivity are or what it means to pick up a controller and play Warzone or play whatever game you're playing, you can fill in that gap with whatever wrong-headed interpretation of what's happening there. Uh, as as you want to, or what that fits your that fits your bill already, right? And so, yeah, I think the thing that's happened is newscasters do go home and play video games. Politicians increasingly go home and play video games or stream them, as we saw last year with AOC and some others, right? Um, and and that is the long term way in which media ends up being, you know, kind of new media ends up being assimilated into a media ecosystem. And you, you move away from that kind of big picture, should we get rid of this thing, and towards the more specific questions of how should we let this thing exist inside of our culture? Yeah. And I, I, think, I think definitely that, for example, if a politician does blame a school shooting or a mass shooting on video games, your local market newscaster is less and less likely to make that the story. Mm -hmm. They may say, oh, yeah, and 
Trump or whoever the case may be, blamed it on video games. But let's move on and talk about what actually happened and maybe talk about some actual root causes of this. It'll, it, it'll be a footnote. It will not be the headline. Right. And I think that, especially if you talk about, say, how kids, their parents may have changing attitudes towards video games, is if you're less likely to see the video game as you know, the boogeyman in the closet, which is causing all these terrible things, just in the culture, it's less likely to be such a focal point yep. of the conversation that it is the evil thing that is causing all the evils in society. But I mean, also, if, video game imagery yeah. is extremely striking. Video games are violent. Like they are predominantly yeah. violent. Yeah. Like, violence is like the primary verb of the vast majority of the video games that people see. It's not, it's not true of video games writ large. You know, you can go to, to Steam or any other marketplace and see lots of games where you can do lots of fun, peaceful things. But what you see on television is mostly violence. And so in the absence of more information, we increasingly don't read. We, we, we visually interpret things through, through news, through social media. So I don't think it's a shock when, like, with an absence of better information and, like, ah, they played video games. Well, I don't know. Go get some footage of Warzone. It's like, well, you're not watching Warzone for the acting. Like, you're watching someone <laughs> snipe someone's skull to bits from, you know, 100 meters away. And in that, that footage, you can't convey you know, how much skill is involved, how much nuance is involved in like you using the control or like setting up the strategy with your unit. Like there's a lot that goes in to that sniper kill, but it's like much easier just to loop that 30 seconds to yeah. watch the brains explode. Um, and so it's not shocking that for folks who, you know, even if they play Candy Crush, maybe they don't play Call of Duty. And so you like kind of run this spectrum where um, in the absence of more information, you know, you got to fill it with something and video games are like really striking to look at. And when most of that striking imagery involves violence, like there are consequences in, in the culture for that. It's, it's worth saying really quick before we move on from this. Yeah. Um, I think we're at a pretty essential moment in the discussion of video games and media effects uh, you know, we're, we're finally moving past that very basic question, does playing violent video games lead to you committing violent acts, right? The studies are in, no, that is not how it works. There was some question for a little while there, like, does it increase aggression, blah, 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 blah. And the answer is no. Um, uh, or, or, or the answer seems to be no from the most recent studies that have come out. It, honestly, in the last couple of months, even, there have been some new, you know, breaking studies that have said, you know, we did real long-term testing. We're really sure that this does not lead you to go pick up a gun or pick up a bat and hurt someone. But now we can move on to that second level question, which is not about regulation because it isn't about action, but is about attitude. Because while we know that media does not lead you to immediately go do a thing, we also know that media does shape the way we view the world. We know that our perceptions of beauty and goodness come from the sorts of stories we tell, the sorts of pictures we see. We know that ideology is something that's shaped and learned, not something that's like, you know, intuitive necessarily. And so now with that in mind, we can go back to looking at games and their media effect and think less about, uh, oh, hey, does, does this make me want to go commit mass murder? Because the answer is no. But does it change the way you think about military violence? Does it change the way you think about uh, sexual assault, about the way women are objectified, about queerness? How can games affect the way we see the world? And that's not about the government coming in and regulating necessarily, but it's about this other sort of self-regulation or, or the, the ways in which an industry or a medium or a scene will shape itself. And what I, I'd say I'm happy to say is that in the last 10 years, as that conversation has shifted, we've seen more and more people who make games say, you know what, I want to make sure, yeah, I'm going to go play Warzone with my friends after, after work, but when I make a game, I want to make something that speaks to 
the way I see the world. Maybe, maybe a world that's a little more just, where it's asking questions about what it means to be a good person or whatever. And, and I don't even just mean the little independent games that I love to go play from itch.io. I mean, even big budget games are, tr are, are moving in that direction of asking questions about the world, trying to situate their players inside of some sort of moment in time. I think about something like Assassin's Creed Origins, which takes place in Egypt, but it's an Egypt that's been colonized by, by Greece. And it's asking all these questions about culture and race and history and the way the people in this time saw themselves. And like, I'm not saying that Assassin's Creed 1 didn't have any cultural, you know, significance in terms of what it was saying, but, but the people who were making it didn't have the space or the confidence that they could explore those topics with an audience that cared about them. And now they're very confident they can do that. And I mean, listen, you're mostly stabbing people in that game. I'm not, you're mostly still an assassin killing folks. Yeah. But that game is filled with these larger questions about what it means to be a person or what it means to be occupied in an occupied state. Like, and that stuff is fascinating and I think is a sign that the medium is con continuing to mature. I think, I mean, as speaking of moving out of one era into another era, right? I think that we are starting to move out of that era where the public freakout is, was about violence in video games. And we're starting to have more conversations about the game players themselves and how they're treating each other, mm. right? Harassment. How far does this go back? I mean, you've been writing about video games for a while, both of y'all. How, I mean, when did you start noticing that people harassing each other in game was an issue? I mean, it goes back as long as, you know, players have been allowed to talk to one another, but, you know, it would, it's still relatively recent in the history of video games that sort of like the mass audience has been able to connect with one another. Like playing yeah. games online was something that started in the 80s and 90s as something you did largely on a computer, which meant the audience that was able to do that, like had to jump through a lot of hoops. Like in order to play Doom online with other people using weird services like 10, like it's just a small uh, cross-section of people that are actually able to do that. It really wasn't until Xbox Live comes around for the original Xbox that suddenly your average person can connect a a wire to their controller to their console and start playing games online and specifically around that time is when voice chat also becomes popular so it's the confluence of a mass audience being able to easily press a button and play games against one another while also being able to express themselves through their voice um and I think that's when, not when people start taking seriously what are the consequences <laughs> of, of giving that available, but it is where it's exposed and given to so many people that we start to see those problems begin to sort of show themselves as we realize, oh, when you just give people a bunch of unregulated uh, tools to, uh, to express themselves, like they're going to do bad things with those like that's the first you know the in any video game that gives you a creative tool it's a race to you know who's going to draw a penis and like with voice chat it's like a race to like who's going to say a racial slur like <laughs> both, yeah. both, both are bad in different ways but it seems to be like that's people are going to push the line until they get pushed back and i think it's taken the video game industry an incredibly long time to even conceive of like what does it mean to draw lines over with their communities because you know, in essence, like if you're blocking people, banning people, uh, censoring people, like coming up with rules and boxes for them, you're pushing back on the people who are paying for the thing that they bought. And I think that ends up leading to a very tense relationship between the audience, the community, and the people who make these games. And I think they're more inclined, generally speaking, at least historically, to say, ah, 
you know, let them figure it out. And like, we'll take care of the people who do like the really bad things, but otherwise, you know, you know, kind of figure it out uh, on your own or don't talk to people. But I, I think now we're starting to see that, um, especially with the rise of streaming, you just kind of can't bury your head in the sand over it. And communities are so alive and dynamic and aren't, aren't just uh, are carrying games to be successful years after they're released. And so it's not that you buy, uh, you sell a game, a bunch of people buy it, you go on to making the next game and you hope those people buy it. Now it's you make a game and maybe you support it for five, 10, 15 years. Minecraft's going to be around 50 years yeah. from now. And so mm-hmm. how you treat that community and how the players in that community feel how they're being treated is increasingly important, but we don't have we still really don't have that many tools on how to do that. That's going to be one of the most important things of the next 10 years is how do you manage a community? Because video games sort of accidentally backed into having communities. They just wanted to make more money from people. And it turns out when you make more money from people over time, you build a community and then (laughs) you go, oh no, like we have to manage these people. Like they're not bits of code. Like they're, they're, they're dynamic people that have a lot of different interests how do we take care of that? And, you know, I, I don't think we, that's not, that's not fully figured out and never will be fully figured out because every community, you know, itself is different. Totally. I think it's, it's so telling and it always has been for me. What is an immediate bannable offense versus what is something where there's a suspension or, you know, like, oh, we'll just take some time off or we're going to give you like a, a, a strike and if you get three strikes, then you're in trouble. Because it's like if you cheat, at a competitive multiplayer game, you're done. Yeah. Because that in the They'll mind sue of you. Like nope. Epic Games has 100%. gone to yeah. they they sued uh like like a 14 year old like I think I'm getting the age a little bit wrong but like someone very young who was like using cheating software because to them that was that was undermining the integrity of the game to such a degree that they had to take legal right. action in order to say to to you know communicate to everyone else. Don't do this because this is really bad. But I, I, I racial slurs. I'm not, yeah. We're not going to take it to court over. Yeah. But the Come second back in thirty that, days, think about what you've done. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, if that, honestly, if uh, that, if that, no, totally. yeah, no, you could, yeah. you, you could. I think we've all, perhaps even you, my friend, have been called the N word <laughs> on a game. And you should see him when his hair comes out. He does it at a good fro. Hey, when I was in high school, I picked it out. It was, it was pretty big. You know, I've I'm, seen the photos. I'll show you when we're done, when we rock. Well, yo, man, I think, and, and on the real, man, I think all three of us have been called a racial slur that may or may not apply to us. And nothing happened to the person. <laughs> no, nothing. Absolutely not. Other than I see them in another game three sessions from now. Yeah. They're still there. And I'm like, no, I'm going after them. I'm going to get them. Because well, they can keep. They can keep spending money, right? Like that's yes. like this disconnect. Like this, this is yeah. like a lot of the tension that is involved here is like, you know, what do you do um, when, let's say, you have like a large streamer that is invading communities, like creating harassment, um, uh, causing issues for uh, other players in the communities? Well, you could ban them, but man, that person had ten thousand people who was watching that stream. Those people, those ten thousand people, might buy the game, mm-hmm. might buy DLC in the game. Um, we want people to be paying attention to the games. Like, like is, is like, is bad news, good news, you know, like, how do you, like, if you're like average, like, you know, 26 year old is, you know, a uh, black kid is getting harassed in some video game, uh, because some streamer is, is following them and targeting that harassment. But if that results in like a bunch of money because that streamer, uh, is like really popular, like, well, who are we going to like wave the stick at? Um, and I yeah. think this, this creates a lot of really yeah. difficult questions, but, I don't think they're that difficult, but I think like, like they seem to be know, difficult being, because they seem to be ha- having difficulty making the decisions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
it's yo, I remember, I mean, again, we're going way back to Xbox Live days where I had a lot of friends who would say, yo, I turned off the voice feature. Because once they figure out I'm black, once they figure out I'm a woman, it's I'm just gonna get harassed the whole time. I can't even play the damn game. And yeah, I mean, wonder what y'all were seeing there. Oh, it was the same thing, right? hundred percent. You know, every racial slur, homophobic slurs, everything, everything, everything. And the thing that is so important to contextualize is what role do games play for people in daily life? And it's like, this is the place I want to go to to chill out. I've just gotten back from work. I just got back from school. I finished my midterms. I, you know, I finished that big project I was doing in the office, whatever it is. And I just want to like relax. And it can be so hard, I think, to communicate to people how jarring that experience can be and how harmful it can be to have that place taken away from you because suddenly it becomes a place of, of hate, right? Like, I, it's so, you see this come up again, again and again when people talk about in-game harassment. I think a lot of folks, especially folks who aren't marginalized, will say, oh, it's just words, right? And it's like, man, like, what if I was yelling in your ear while you were trying to eat dinner? Like, what if I was doing my best to find the, the strongest way I could to disrupt you taking a nap. You would not like it because I would be coming after you. And then what if you freighted that with history, you know, a history of violence, a history of oppression, uh, a history of targeted harassment? Like I, it is, if you've lived through it and have that experience, I think that's something you get. And if you haven't, you haven't. And maybe that's just going to be a gap that's hard to close. But that's a gap that these companies need to close and have since. Again, yeah, since I was 15 playing, honestly, even before voice chat, even Fantasy Star Online on the Dreamcast had like picto chat, basically. You could draw things. I was like, of course people were drawing racist memes on, on that game. You know what I mean? There was no, as far as I remember, there was very little way that I could get someone's attention to the moderators or administrators and get them banned or anything like that. It was just like, okay, I, I have to just grow thick skin to try to get through this. And that's not ideal. Like, that's not the world we should live in for this stuff, you know? For, for something that you play because it's fun. Totally. Because you want to relax. Totally. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, importantly, it's not, uh, it's not just because people are going to have fun and relax. I think there are whole lives that people sure. live in these communities. Like, you know, when I, and growing up, you know, my parents looked at me weird when I said, like, I had friends online. Now that's just a totally normal, like, whether that's through video games or other uh, social media, like, it is, it is normal to essentially have, like, a wholly different life that you are having online that is intermingling with, like, the real life that you have, but it may be wholly separate. You may have a whole different identity that exists, like, in these online worlds. And, like, I think for a lot of people, that's more than fun. It's more an escape. Like it is, it is singularly part of their identity. And like once mm -hmm. that, you know, games, you know, and other online communities have achieved that sort of sort of like power in people's lives, like there's a responsibility to understand the power and, and weight of that. And I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes from is where, you know, the, the marketing and the way these games are often talked about is like fun in games, but like people were spending they don't just play the game and beat it. They're spending hundreds, thousands uh, of hours in these worlds, like with people who are genuinely their friends. And when that bubble is like pierced by, by someone who is out to, uh, to, to spew hate, um, specifically because they know they're going to upset that person, it is then incumbent among the people who run these services, these communities, these like these digital lives for people to, to take some responsibility for that and, and understand that it is not just um, something simple to people. Like this is really, really important to them. It means a lot to them. Yeah. And I mean, it's, as you were saying, it's, it's not just fun. I mean, earlier in the episode, we early in the episode, obviously we saw the people behind say, hey, Rocco, right? The, the couple. And 
for them, partially, this is the job. This is actually workplace, right? And we saw early in the episode how the people behind, say, Rocco are getting harassed and, and beyond harassed, really. You know what I mean? And I th- it's, but that sort of brings me to, for the couple that is behind, say, hey, Rocco, I think one of the things that they wanted to see was for Rare, for the company to step in and actually take some ownership and really manage the community. Hey, if there's harassment happening, do something about it. Realistically speaking, though, what kind of role can we expect a game company to take in stopping harassment within the video game world? There, it depends on what the game is, and, and but we've seen different types of models, right? Um, you know, we've seen the ways in which companies like Riot or Blizzard uh, build systems to track user behavior, and not just not just did they say a slur into a microphone, which is like yes, you should be stopping that, but the sort of uh, game behavior that makes uh, it hard for other people to to play the game, right? They're what we call griefing traditionally, which is like you know unhealthy. Uh, unhealthy gameplay behaviors that target a particular player and kind of edge them out. It's sort of like take like being picked last in the dodgeball team, but then also everyone just throws their ball at just you instead of the, playing the game. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, and it's your first time playing and, and you never playing. want to play again. Exactly. And, and so what you end up seeing in some cases from companies that run competitive games is they take players that do that sort of griefing behavior or are rude in chat. Maybe they don't even, maybe they, they're line steppers, right? They don't necessarily cross the line, but they walk alongside it. They don't say the slur, but they dog whistle or they are just generally rude. And sometimes these, these companies will uh, put those players into a pool where they're only playing against those other players. Right. And that relies on having a really comprehensive and robust user reporting system and monitoring, right? You need a company that's built the game such that they can go back and see what the players did. For years, that wasn't the case. It was very easy to have a company throw up their hands and be like, well, we weren't there in the session where it happened. But like investing in that technology is something that these companies have done in some cases or need to do in the cases where they haven't. Because then once you have that record, you can start kind of scaffolding on other technologies and other systems of monitoring uh, to to be able to say, okay, well, who is doing what here? In some ways, it's a similar problem to the big social media problem of, of moderation, uh, but it's one that has to be addressed regardless of the fact that us in the studio might not have the magic bullet answer to, to solve it right now, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's investing in, in people and, in like, services that can look at the context of these situations and understand uh, what's happening. But I think the reason, you know, you see with, with Sea of Thieves and, the you know, the, the story... Um, in this episode, is that a lot of the communication with the with Rare like happens behind the scenes. They don't want to mm-hmm. say anything publicly because what these companies really try to avoid is setting precedent. Um, they don't want to have to be held accountable for making a decision on one thing or another, unless it's extremely obvious. You know, you use the racial slur like you know, nobody's going to like blink an eye at that or the people who are blinking an eye are probably going to get banned later anyway uh, for doing the same thing. But when you have like complex like dynamics between communities in which like money and people and lives and like where, you know, for us, I, I think it is a pretty clear call. They should have just like blocked this streamer and yeah. like moved on with their lives. Um, they don't want to do that because they don't want to set the precedent. Cause once you've set the precedent that someone who uh, incites this sort of harassment, um, this is the action the company will take. Well then the expectation is, well then they're going to take that action with, every other instance of that. And then, well, is we're going to, you know, publish 
their like, you know, a two page document that explains like everything that led to, you know, I mean, like this, these are the rabbit holes they don't want to go down. They don't want to talk about these issues because they are so complex. It is not as simple as just someone does something terrible, gets um, thrown into a pool of banned players and you wash your hands of it and move on. Like, I, I think the fact that it's so complex is something companies should embrace and talk about the fact that. These are like really complex decisions. The like the, the banning of this person does not mean the banning of another person. And 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 be more honest with their communities that like they're figuring it out too. Because technology like won't save us from this problem. Like it is always going to be a mixture of gray areas, especially once you have people and streaming and all these other different sort of like uh, things kind of colliding uh, together. But the lack of sort of like transparency and honesty. I understand why they do it, um, but I think it ultimately leads to really disastrous consequences because you get something like Sea of Thieves where then the people involved who are being harassed say, well, fine, I just don't want to be here anymore. And then the bully wins. And, yeah. you know, I don't know how that helps Sea of Thieves. I don't know how that helps, uh, you know, the, the uh, gaming communities, you know, uh, writ large. And it's just a, it's a really sad situation. It seems like it could have been uh, addressed more meaningfully. I mean, the, the thing about even this and the, the harassment that we've seen in this episode, right, in this one specific game, and there are obviously other games that this happens in, it's not just this game, and there's things that have escalated beyond this. I mean, actually, in Sea of Thieves, it has escalated since I did that interview with the two people behind Sea of, um, say, hey, Rocco, that somebody got swatted. Right. A, play, a Sea of Thieves player got swatted, which for anybody not familiar with it, it's when somebody falsely calls the police department and said, hey, there's some horrifically violent crime happening at this address. Please send as many police officers as you can to go save this person. And Which results has resulted in the past in violence being done to innocent people. Right. People, people die. Yeah, people, exactly. people, people die because of this. And, I mean, this is, this is something happening within the fun, cheery world of a pirate game. Right? Something that you would not think that would happen. Right. And, I mean, the thing is, are game companies equipped? Are game companies ready to deal with this? Because we can talk about, hey, they should have done this, they should have done that. We could talk about this all day. Are they ready for this? Do I they mean, know what they're the, dealing with? To some degree, I feel like that question is, it's too late for the are they ready question because we're in it already. The genie's out of the bottle, the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back. Uh, games are going to continue to be online indefinitely. And so like, if, if they're not equipped, they got to get equipped. Like that's, That is... The answer might be no, but but that doesn't lead us in a better place, and I don't think that that's an excuse necessarily either, right? I, if, if there was a failure of foresight to understand that people, especially marginalized people, would come under threat, uh, you know, from from people who meant them harm, then like, okay, well, we're here now. What are you going to do about it? Um, and 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 maybe the answer ends up being that there should be more resources made available for this sort of moderation, like. Do I wish that there was a world in which there were, you know, government funds for setting up better moderation systems inside of video games? Totally. Unfortunately, we live in a nation where, like, the government doesn't want to give money to anything other than big business uh, doing big business stuff. I mean, maybe this will count. Maybe this, maybe, maybe instead of being arts funding, this can be entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley, you know, uh, funding or something. Arts, yes. arts funding would go to oh, yeah. stopping people from calling each other the N word. And send cops to each other's house. Well, I'm saying it would not be arts funding because that doesn't exist in America. I'm saying Fair it would enough. have to be the sort of tax cuts that Silicon Valley gets. But maybe that's a thing, right? It's like, is there a world in which someone, you know, a junior senator comes in with a, with a bill that says, we want to offer tax cuts to anybody who invests in 
uh, moderation uh, on social media or video game platforms or something like that, right? Like, I don't know. This is, we came up with that in 12 seconds in a studio. True. <laughs> there are things to be done. There are people whose jobs are doing this. And my guess is they've thought of that and, and are in the process of trying to push things like that or other, or other things forward. It's just hard when it isn't the number one priority, when the number one priority, as Patrick has said again and again, is that bottom line, is figuring out how to keep people in the ecosystem spending money and not fundamentally getting rid of the people who are bad apples uh, if, they can, if they can help it. What about the streamers, though, right? Because there are, I mean, yeah. I'm sure we've all got people who we've watched and then realize that, yo, their stream, their feed, the chat is just mad toxic. And they may not step over that line of swatting somebody or calling somebody something terrible or harassing them, calling them, right? But they may provide an atmosphere that kind of encourages their fans to go do something like that. Yeah, totally. What if anything, is to be done about the streamers that have these kind of communities, that foster these kind of communities? I mean, again, I think to some degree you're going to get very, very uh, specific, subjective answers from us because we've been on that side of the thing where a big streamer sends us sends, sends their people at you or whatever before to ruin your, your Twitter mentions for three days. You know this what happened I mean? to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm a public figure in the video yeah, game I, industry. I, uh, Dude. I, I, uh, Last year, I uh, went to my, I had some personal information that, that got out and I went, so I, I was We should tell that story. No, you, should, you should set up the story <laughs> because of how it intersects with the ESRB. Whoa, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I don't know um, this one, man. In recent years, I've had various parts of my personal information sort of disclosed, phone numbers, like apartment addresses, like it's, it's happened before. And, it, and one time it happened where I was here at Vice and they advise like, hey, you should probably go like talk to the local police and like advise them about swatting if if that you know maybe if that was going to become a thing. I was like, okay, uh, and I went to my local police department and uh, really it was a very nice police officer. I tried to explain. So I, I'm a writer and reporter about video games. Like I'm like fairly successful and like sometimes people don't like my opinions and my reporting and they harass me or send me death threats. And you just saw him like re really trying to be nice and understanding about what was going on, but be, like really not believing me that this is the thing that happens. Oh, and, no. and at the end of the day, I was like, look, bottom line, what I'd like to do is just have something on record that says if a SWAT call was called to, the, to, to my home address, that there would be someone that would either contact my wife or me to just be like, hey, you, you did write down here that someone might call in a, a SWAT team to, to come. So is everything okay? And the response from the police officer was, well, he's like, well, hey, look at it from my perspective. You have come to me and said, <laughs> what if someone calls in a SWAT team? Come check with me. And then if someone calls us and says, like, there's a kidnap, a kidnapping happening at your house, like, we better call the kidnapper to see if, like, everything's right. cool. It's like, we're still going to send the SWAT team in. And I was like, yeah, I understand your logic this sucks um, that this is the, the, the spot where I find myself in. And so I, I think that's, that, that's something where this isn't just like a video game company problem. Like this is a, a societal like internet literacy problem mm. in which we have created tools that have consequences that are so large and so big, but we don't have great answers on how to deal with them. We don't have um, uh, police officers um, uh, and policing communities that, that understand like, 
like, okay, if a call comes in like this, like maybe, maybe this sounds a little fishy, like what can we do to try and weed out that this might be something where we might be putting someone in danger by following the protocol. We just don't have those things in place. And that's where it goes so far beyond um, just video game companies. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's probably just a generational thing. Like this is something that will get addressed yeah. over time when people who are younger, who under- don't have to be explained what swatting is, don't have to be explained what you know uh, video game harassment is, like they'll just be in power and then those things will just get suggested and implemented as we go along. It's just we find ourselves now in a position where we're dealing with all of those consequences with no tools for anyone to do anything about it. And like that's a really uncomfortable position to be in. All right. Yeah, I mean, the, it, I think that legitimately is, is an issue. If you try to go to the police and say, hey, so I play this pirate video game. <laughs> and <laughs> right. because of that, people are calling my place of work or calling my house and threatening me and telling me, hey, all your info's on the dark web, we're coming right. for you. A when, lot of cops are gonna look at you and say, you playing a what now? Yeah. And somebody doesn't like When I your say game? It out loud, I look at myself and go, how did I get here? Totally. Like, what, how yeah. did this happen? So like, I don't blame anyone else for also being a little, I don't quite under, understand. Cause it's, 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 it's uh, so many things are intersecting at once that it is difficult to really grapple with the dynamics at play. Right. It's, totally. it, it, so it seems, it seems like there, there are so many factors which there's, there's so many elements which we could look to for responsibility or for you know, any kind of action. Right there, There's the streamers. There's the game developers. There's the players themselves, the game players themselves. Ultimately, who is responsible for getting rid of this toxicity in video games? I mean, this goes back to that, that thing I said before about how politicians want to be able to put it off on one thing and be like, it's done. Yeah. There is no single answer for that, right? The society... Any society is is created through a network of causes and effects of individual actors and institutions uh, of both government and non-governmental you know, organizations. All of that stuff contributes to the way things work. And so, for instance, you go back to Gamergate when that happened years ago. And it's like, well, what was the one cause of Gamergate? Well, no, there is not one cause. There's a history of misogyny and marginalization. There's a, a history of, of uh, people who feel persecuted for reasons X, Y, Z. Um, there is a, a history that allows a sort of misogynistic uh, attitude to pr- proliferate on social media platforms. There are websites that are allowed to be hosted uh, where people are able to dox uh, other folks without any sort of repercussions. Um, I mean, this is the, you know, in that era is when someone, someone on uh, one of the many, uh, you know, websites where people who are like pro Gamergate organized posted what they were sure was my parents' address. They were like, Austin grew up to rich parents in upstate New York. Like, not me. That's not me. I hope those people are okay. I hope no one does anything to those people because none of that even has to do with me. I can't even get in contact with those people. And so like, okay, well, how did we get there? And the answer ends up being everything from, you know, the ways in which information is available on the internet to histories of racism inside of games culture. And that's like not a fulfilling answer because it means it feels like playing a game of whack-a-mole, but progress is always that, right? There are always multiple avenues towards getting, making things better that you have to take all of them at once. You can't just pick the one and like drive it home. And it can't just be, we make Twitch stronger against streamers who, who cross the line. It can't just be we ask companies or demand that companies that make multiplayer video games crack down on people who use slurs or who swat or whatever. I mean, they should all be doing those things. 
And that is what makes it daunting. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't just say, hey, Twitch, be harsher on streamers because people just go to Discord. Maybe, right? But I don't think that means we can't say Twitch be harsher on streamers. Sure, sure. Right? That's not the only totally. it's not the only solution. Totally. I mean, that the the weird thing about this, if we're talking about regulation, right, is that back with the Lieberman hearings, with Mortal Kombat situation, there was a quick and easy solution for that. There was a silver bullet. It's ban the games. That's not a solution any three of us want here. I think that anybody. But I don't even think that would have been wants. a solution. Is the mm, thing. Okay. Games would have kept being made. Be- yeah. There are there were places in the world, you know, in the '80s where arcades didn't exist, where games didn't exist. People pirated games. Yeah. People built little machine, built their own computers. Right. That would have worked. Yeah. And, and that would have happened here somehow. Right. Yeah. We would have figured out a way to find a loophole to have an underground scene. And this is the thing about maybe. For me, thinking about regulation and what good regulation looks like is getting away from the banhammer model and the the kind of uh, one you, one size fits all model of what regulation looks like, and thinking about what are the little tweaks, what are the little rules that we can put into play over particular issues and problems. Whether that is changing what the the uh, you know what is the the result of someone swatting someone or someone using a, a racial slur on Twitch or whatever it is to uh, legal incentives or, or financial incentives to invest in things. And like having that whole network of regulation instead of the one-size-fits-all model is where I think you end up in a healthier place. Now, the part of the problem is like it's hard in America especially to look around and find any industry that has been particularly well-regulated, that has a, a, a good model to follow. But I do think we can start to look outside of America at the ways in which certain countries have taken different tacts for video games in different ways, right? So like internationally, there are a couple places where you cannot have a random draw loot box, loot crate style system where you don't know what's inside the box, right? Um, and because of that, the rules kind of internationally ends up, end up or the rules don't change, but behaviors change internationally. You now know what your percentage chance is when you're playing a big game like you know uh, Dota or Genshin Impact what your chances are of pulling a character you really want to play as from a box, right? Um, whereas five years ago, there were no laws in place anywhere in the world to protect you in that way. And so those companies just didn't do that. Um, another great way of, of thinking about this is the European uh, kind of internet privacy laws that passed yeah. a couple of years ago. We're like, we in America don't have the benefits directly of all of that stuff. But there have been some knock-on effects in which like, it's a little easier for us to opt out of cookies on certain sites and stuff like that than it was beforehand because it's easier to do that one-size-fits-all solution once that law is passed on their side for the whole world. And so I think those are the sorts of things to look at in terms of, okay, well, what are particular problems in the, in the situation that we can start to apply laws to? Uh, and, and that inspiration has to come, unfortunately, from outside of the way America treats most industry. Because most American <laughs> industry moves towards deregulation, not more regulation. Yeah. And here we are, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even just to sort of finish, and I think this sort of dovetails on what you were saying, even just to sort of finish what I was saying earlier, is that, I mean, back with Mortal Kombat, I think one very simplistic way of addressing it would have been, okay, no more bloody video games. Mm-hmm. Can't make them anymore. None of us would have liked that. I think that people would have figured out a way to make games get around that anyway. But that was one solution. That mm-hmm. was sort of the silver bullet. With this, getting people to stop harassing each other, stop threatening each other, stop taking the, the violence and the griefing online, take it offline to where it actually hurts people, gets into their homes, that's not something that you can just say, hey, what are you going to ban the game? Ban, ban, ban online, ban Twitch, right. ban people talking to each other online. You can't do this. And so it's just as you're saying, the, 
the, the solution is really going to have to come from, I think, a much more creative place than, than perhaps anybody's thinking right now. What if you have anything to add to that? <laughs> no, I, you know, I think it's a matter like game companies, government, they can do whatever they, they can do anything. And it's a matter of values and importance and hierarchy. And I think part of what's happened in the last 10 years is if only by accident, by communities becoming important, now we are recognizing, well, then how those communities are managed is also important. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to be something that's figured out organically and weirdly over time. And it's going to require a lot of experimentation because if the, the, the solution is to do nothing, well, then, you know, then the status quo remains. But I, I think, right. you know, as Austin pointed out, it's going to be just trying things like real, like being honest with your audience, like we don't, this is maybe going to have some bad ripple effects. Like yeah. this is maybe going to hurt more than it helps, but we're trying some things and we're going to see how it goes and give us feedback. Cause that's the thing about video games that, that makes it so unique to like any other creative medium is they can try something. And then the next day go, Oh yeah, that, that was terrible. Right. Like that <laughs> yeah. ruined the experience. They do that with like patch notes for, exactly. for competitive games all the time. We're like, all right, we're going to make this ability more with- damaging. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's going to require that and it's going to require, um, you know, you know, as you know, the, relying on the government is is probably uh, not necessarily the, the tack that's going to. It's going to take applying pressure to the game companies themselves, applying pressure to hardware manufacturers like Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, yeah. and realizing that probably in the short term, like if change is going to occur, it's going to be those players saying, well, this is important to us. And because it's important to us, like we're requiring X, Y, Z and wanting companies to invest in X, Y, Z. And that change can come and it'll be messy, but you know, it's possible. And it just requires people caring enough to, you know, put that in their, their hierarchy of values. Yeah. And I don't want to be all gloom and doom because we've certainly heard a lot of really terrible stories (laughs) this episode, but do y'all think we're headed in a good direction? I mean, I think that there is, I think if it feels like we're gloom and doom, it's because we know how good it can be, right? I think we all have those experiences of getting online with our friends and doing a stream or just playing in a multiplayer game where it's you and a bunch of people who, like, you come to know their their lives. You know, like, oh, wow, yeah, this person got married, congrats. And knowing that that can be so good is why I think it's such a downer when the harassment hits, when the swatting stories come through. If it wasn't so good, it wouldn't feel so bad. And so I think it's only going to get more impressive and more, you know, we're only going to get more connected over the years to come. Uh, and and for me, that is still something I'm fundamentally optimistic about. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic as well. It's just, you know, it's going to be messy getting there, but it's always hindsight, right? And so I think 10 years, we'll look back and we'll look at things like this incident with Sea of Thieves, like the rise of Twitch, the rise of, of YouTube, and it'll all seem so quaint because we'll have come on some other other side of it. We'll have a whole new set of problems uh, that <laughs> seem a whole lot worse than the ones we had uh, before. But, you know, I mean, games are games are so important to all of our lives like what's the alternative like we don't like we're all we're staring them in the face mm-hmm. and a lot of people want them to be better and i also think you know in the same way that i think government has an opportunity to do better because younger people come into power with a different set of values a different set of experiences it's also true of the people making these games right like we have for a long time the power structure and still to some degree exists of like people who like started working for companies in the 70s 80s and 90s and that's just not true like even these bigger companies are having 
people from a wider uh, variety of personal experiences um, who have grown up online are going to bring those experiences into making those games. And at some point, they'll be the people who are approving those games mm-hmm. and are in those budget meetings. And it'll never be perfect. Like it's, you know, at the end of the day, like a, in a lot of ways, a fundamentally corrupt system um, that we're living in. But I think it can be better than it is. And I think a lot of that is just like slow change over time where we look back and go, oh, like this has become better. Like this was something good that um, this game did or this company did um, or this community did and, and applying those lessons um, going forward. Even, you know, even, you know, the rise of like games caring about accessibility, like totally that's not harassment. Yeah. But that has been like Microsoft took that as initiative. They made a controller that is transformative for people's lives. Like they decided, actually, we want people to play our games. And we want people who aren't the folks in control in, in commercials who are the traditionally when you think of who plays video games. Like they thought wider, they put money behind it, they put mm-hmm. resources behind it. And like voila, they made a controller that is like <laughs> changing people's lives and how they interact with the video games that you and I and how we play them, we take mm-hmm. for granted. And so if they truly wanted to do transformative things in this space, like the opportunity is there and and hopefully they'll just, you know, take a chance to seize it. Yeah, and I think that's that's a perfect example of how it really does work both ways because with what happened with Say Hey Rocco, there were a lot of people who just bounced from the game. They just said, yo, this game is toxic. We're not playing anymore. And they took their audiences with them. And then you got the flip side, for example, what Microsoft was doing. I think they got a lot of goodwill from people saying, wow, Microsoft is really doing things. They actually care about everybody who plays their games. And that brought people who maybe... The, you know, releasing that controller didn't necessarily affect them directly in their personal lives. But, you know, hey, yo, that's cool. Totally. I think it did affect a lot of people in their personal lives. And also, there's so much to learn about from, from that experience where they involved people from the disability uh, community. Yeah. They made sure that, that there were lots of needs met by, by, through that device. And, and it's a reminder that, like, think about how often this industry kind of pats itself on its back for its creativity, for the its its problem solving uh, acumen, and all of that's true. Like the people who make video games are incredibly, incredibly talented, smart, creative people. And it's like, well, where are we putting that creative? Where are we putting that creativity? Uh, to to what problems are we trying to solve? Why is it that it's easy to uh, imagine a world in which the tech for the way guns feel in video games will continue to get better, but for the question of of moderation, like that seems off limits or, or like a pipe dream? And the answer is because it's not a priority for us right now. And, and if we prioritize it, I'm super confident that these people who make incredible things will find really, really clever solutions or at least improvements on what's here now. Also, uh, Microsoft is the company we are both praising and criticizing here. They own yes, Rare and true, published yeah. CFPs yeah. and also made this accessibility controller that we're praising. So it's just, you know, it just goes to show. Xbox Live, where we said, for yeah. most of us, yes. this is the experience where it started. They put a headset in the box, and that meant that 12-year-olds could call me nigger on Xbox Live with the hardest R they could do. This is this is the ultimate. This isn't even full circle. This is uh, we're hitting seven twenty. Yeah, yeah, we are. Where's Tony Hawk? Let's go hit that nine hundred. Yo, no, you're totally right too. So a, a sort of difficult wrinkle, I guess, in what happened with say Rocco was that right after they went public with what had happened, sixty people get banned, and but they aren't given a reason why, and that of course released a whole. It was a whole other can of worms because. Then at some point, people start to blame Rocco, that I got banned because of this person. Now, they can't necessarily say that's, that is what happened, but 
I, I wonder what y'all think. Is this is this a common thing to get banned? Is it is it common to get banned and not be told why? Yeah, I think I think so. Like I, I feel like that is a different companies take different tacks with this. I don't think that there is a single industry wide best practice on this. I, I you'll even see in some cases a company will tell you if you got banned for XYZ thing, but not ABC thing. Even if you did both of those. It's, it's, or one or the other, I'm saying. Oh, Do you I know see. what I mean? It's also like some companies have taken a completely different tax that I think uh, I have found to be more productive, and they have said has resulted in better consequences in the community where they explain publicly why someone was banned, where they Ooh. will say they they said this word, this is the actions that they took that resulted in the ban. Because if it all happens, you know, cloak and dagger behind the scenes, like that results in exactly what you're saying, where it's like, well, no one really know what happened, why they were banned, what was the reasoning, um, and other companies have found it more. Uh, 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 consequential to explain this is why we took this action because it may influence others and did influence others mm -hmm. to then not take those actions because they realize like, oh, that's a thing I can get banned for. And actually, right. you know, having my username out there and publicly shamed, you know, you know, the existence of Donald Trump maybe undermines the idea that like shame is a thing in like American culture. But I do think there are there's usefulness to explaining publicly why something happened to a specific individual because there, if, if anything, it explains like a, a set of principles that a company has for like why they're taking a certain action and may then right. deter others from taking that action in the future. The Rocco situation is interesting because the it's it leaves you wondering, was part of the question here, oh, we can't do this because if we if we say this publicly, it's going to draw a target even further on the the uh, Rocco Rocco's back right or that that couple's back basically right. and I get where that thinking comes from but I think I lean with Patrick here and and think that the transparency long term is is the thing to do and there are different degrees of transparency you can you can just put out a thing that says we just did a bunch of bands many of them were related to X Y Z thing or you can go all the way to like here is a forum post that says this person was banned because they did X Y Z thing we've seen that work and and uh, yeah I. I no, uh, no tears shed for the person who's upset that the world now knows they got banned for dropping six consecutive racial slurs. Right. You know? Right. Well, I mean, and sort of to even rephrase it, just so we have it for for the thing. But I mean, is there in the situation with, hey, say, hey, Rocco, you had a bunch of people who were banned, and they were not told specifically why they were banned. They were just told you've been banned. Is there a good argument for not telling somebody why they're banned? I think the only thing that comes to mind there is like, hey, is is there a chance that someone else, not the company, but another player or streamer or something, gets a target on their back for further harassment? But in this case, it doesn't. It feels like that's where people jumped to anyway. And could the company have, in fact, could Rare have stepped up and supported, say, Hey Rocco, even more by being like, yeah, you got banned because of this stuff. That's the way it is. We stand behind these people who are who are doing this great content. I think that that's a situation where it, it seems pretty open and shut that that transparency would have helped the people in question and would have, whether it confirmed or denied what the cause of that ban was, what the people thought it was, I think long term, that's just a better solution than than leaving it up in the air. It is sort of a tough, a tough call, though. I, I can see what you're saying, yeah. because we are interested, we're, we're very used to different levels of transparency from developers in different areas, right? Think of the release notes, the patch notes. Right. Some of them are very, it's super granular. We changed the way that jump physics work <laughs> right. in this very specific yes. character to, oh, to fix balancing. And then sometimes you just get, we made some upgrades. 
and I think the very Nintendo often, patch note model. <laughs> the there were some way. changes. There like, were changes. Oh, word? Yeah, cool. version 0.001. Right. Changes. Yeah. Made changes. Made changes. <laughs> um, and no, I, I think that's a great comparison in some ways where like the community can react to things better if they have that information. There are cases against that with patch notes where, you know, I've seen people say like, oh, well, we, we don't, we just want to see how people react. And we'll learn from that. But that's that's the difference between game balance and game harassment, right? It's like harassment should be the space where that transparency uh, uh, benefits everyone long term in, in a very clear uh, way, I think. Right. So, um, and this is, Dr. I'll throw this to you, man. Um, now, we've, games, marketing departments, community departments, I think at this point right now are fairly sophisticated, right? You have the staff. So, you know if you've got people who aren't necessarily harassing each other in your game, but are taking that off to Twitter, right? So if you've got a streamer who's playing your game and then just doing just terrible things and kind of inciting their followers to harass other people, say on Twitter, on Discord or whatever, how much responsibility can we put on a game developer, on a game company for that sort of behavior that takes place on other social media and not on their game? Yeah, this is a really complicated question for, for companies because... Uh, I, I do think it's incumbent upon them to do their research, especially for these big ticket streamers, right? We're not t- we're not asking you to go find like Ted one two three and like see what he's up to on Facebook. <laughs> like we're, I, mean, I don't know what Ted one two three is up to. Like maybe we should look into Ted one two three. You know, we're you know, he's on we're talking about. Now, I like, think so. Uh, he, you know, like it, 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 you know, I think what you're alluding to, like who are like the the, the streamers who are. Uh, you know, they're drawing in tens of thousands of of people. Like this is a relatively small list of people that if you are building a game in which community is important, in which it wasn't an accident, like, hey, the long-term viability commercially of this game is that we have a community around it going forward, then you should have a staff that is able to keep tabs on what are these people doing on their other other platforms? Because it is part of the picture, because that is the strategy of some of these folks is like, well, I'll act one way on this platform and I'm gonna act another way on that platform. And I know that's gonna kind of diffuse responsibility, confuse a corporation and just kind of tie their hands up and make them not want to make a decision. Like that, once we know that's actively what folks who are trying to disrupt communities are doing, you then need to have strategies in place to, if not combat it, then to understand it and make that part of your decision-making process when you're trying to uh, understand what to do going forward. But this is where, you know, the lack of moderation on places like Twitter, lack of moderation on most social platforms, like is an issue because everyone is just looking at the other person going like, well, if if you're not going to make a call, then I guess I don't have to make a call. <laughs> yeah. And then if they're not going to make a call, then I don't have to make a call. You know, it's it's why you often see social media companies make decisions in unison because they're just waiting for someone to take a step forward, and and then the others go, oh, thank God, like yeah, we all, <laughs> oh, yeah. We all wanted to do this for a while. Oh, so I mean, I look look at this, look what happened with banning Trump. I mean, oh, it was just like what in PayPal. Did PayPal ban Trump? I think PayPal dropped to Spotify. Just, bro, what? Is is he on Spotify? Just listen to YMCA over and over and doing his bands. That's it. Well, when, when, when Trump got banned, you know, like two days later, Twitch sends out a statement that says, oh, also we banned him too. And it's like, great, like slow Thanks. clap, guys. Like yeah. you had to send a statement telling people that you you banned him because no one cared enough to ask because you're a company that really slow rolls doing any sort of moderation of your community whatsoever. Um, but that is a case where even a place like Twitch, which has been very slow to uh, moderate its community, um, felt the need like, well, I guess – 
all right, well, here's the low hanging fruit. We'll, we'll, we'll get rid of Trump too. So, you know, it's, if these communities work in parallel, you will see mass change occur. Um, but you know, yeah, if you're building these communities, you need to be responsible for like what's happening on the other platforms. Cause they all work together. This isn't Xbox live anymore right. where you log on to one platform. That is where the people are now. Yeah. You can stream on Xbox. You can stream on PlayStation, but that's just not how it works. People are using a discord and a Twitter and a Patreon and a, and a, and a streaming service. And like, they're all working in concert. And if you're pretending that because it's diffused, that like uh, removes you of responsibility for how those people are acting on those platforms. Well, then that's where you end up in a situation where you end up making no decisions because you've decided that it's not your responsibility to make it's someone else's. So do you, do you think that we will see a world where there's some big streamer in some very prominent game who starts pulling some really harassment type stuff on say Twitter or another social media thing and then that game developer season says, okay, yo, congratulations. No more You're account. Done. You're out. I would, I would wager we already have and that like if we could pull up our phones really quick, we could find an example of that already happening. Um, you know, th- there are people who've been banned from League of Legends for years right. because of their toxic behavior both in-game and out. Normally what it ends up being in my memory of it is like, oh yeah, this person who was a jerk on Twitter also occasionally is a jerk in-game. And so that's an easy... Connect. I mean, the most recent uh, example of this is uh, from a cross-platform situation. Uh, is is um, uh, what is his name? Why am I blanking on his name? Dr. Disrespect. Gu- no, oh. Gutao. Doctor Disrespect. <laughs> Doctor Disrespect is a kind of an open question in some ways. Hard to answer that one. But yeah. Gutex, who was this dude from the the FGC years ago, um, or maybe that's not true. I think he was from the StarCraft community, from the esports community. Uh, but he had a he had a very popular emote on Twitch, uh, uh, Pog Champ, right? Which uh, and he was just banned, or that 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 emote was just changed. His face was removed. It's him like being like excited. Is the is the face? Yeah, right, I'm not right. doing a Pog Champ. It's not going to happen. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> but this will become a very different show. Exactly. If you do that. Um, uh, but they changed it from him to now a rotating cast of people because he was on Twitter spouting some real stop the steal bs right some some stuff about about the coming right after the january 6th capitol hill insurrection stuff um or adoring it really uh and so they're like oh we got to take action on this dude who isn't even an active streamer in in the way that like he's like a big deal streamer at this point but he's part of the culture of twitch and so they changed that and then of course within two days the solution that they that they came up with led to someone else being targeted and harassed uh, because what they did is they made it so that any any streamer could submit a version of themselves doing the same like facial expression. Yeah. Uh, and the second dude who got it, the second person who got it was a black streamer who immediately got harassed on and off the platform instantly. Lots of accusations about like, you know, affirmative action, quotas, et cetera, all that stuff. So being black and playing video games is pretty fun. Man. It's yeah, man. It's weird. <laughs> uh, you would think it wouldn't be a big deal. Nah, it is. It's a fun world, man. Uh, it's it's a fun world. But yo, uh, anything, anything y'all want to add? Anything we miss? That is it. Thanks for having us. Oh, yo. All right. I'll jump in. OK, so. That is a that is a fun note to end on. Uh, so, yeah, it's for real, for real. Um, real complicated stuff, but uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up here. Austin Patrick, thanks so much for joining me, man. Thank you. Thanks again for having us.
and you. Thanks for joining us. There is a lot more to come on Reset the Unauthorized Guide to Video Games. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And it's leaning against the wall, and then the light is vaulted all the way to the ceiling. It's you know what? It's it's set up. It looks good. The light is there. Yeah, you look well lit. lit. It's nice. I do a podcast with you multiple times a week. It's the best you've up your I'll I'll put this, I'll make this part, I'll I'll put in this lighting for the podcast now. I was complimenting you, and then and then we got a test pattern (laughs) immediately. Yeah, your that's face part, just that's part of my lighting stuff. Okay, yeah. gotcha. That's good. It's special effects. Uh, hopefully, the no backlighting problem today. I know that had been an issue in the past. You know, there is. There is. That's why. Oh um, yeah, but it's not terrible. The, uh, there's there's snow. Well, you might be able to notice slightly here. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's snow. So yeah. like the snow causes incredible backlighting, which is why you have to close all that and have actual gotcha. lights. Because if I was to open those windows, it would actually just look like the aliens were invading because all the, the sun that is there bounces off the snow. All right, Patrick, I think we're getting ready to roll. All right.